0: NetCredit is here to say yes to a personal loan or line of credit when other lenders say no. Apply in minutes and get a decision as soon as the same day. Loans offered by NetCredit or Lending Partner Banks and serviced by NetCredit. Application subject to review and approval. Learn more at netcredit.com partner. NetCredit. Credit to the people. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available pro power onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, Put a ton of miles on it on the freeway. Had five adults in the cabin for long trips. And it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks. Nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro-access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. According to the NAMUS database, the National Missing and Unidentified Person System, 600,000 people roughly declared missing every year, just in the United States. Some of them, the great majority of them, thankfully turn up quickly and are taken out of the system. Kids who wandered off, adults who decided on an impromptu change of scenery, miscommunications, that sort of thing. Unfortunately, many of them are also found to be no longer alive. The dead bodies of missing people are discovered every day. Many, thanks to ever-evolving forensic science, are identified, leading to at least some closure for the victims' families, but many others, almost 90,000 a year in just the U.S. at any given moment in recent years, have not been found. We don't know if they're alive or dead, if they've been sexually trafficked, or if they're homeless, disoriented uh, due to mental illness or drug use or both, or have just left to start a new life somewhere else without telling anybody. When somebody goes missing for uh, initially, there's typically a burst of energy at the beginning you know, to find them. Maybe the family makes calls to news stations, distributes flyers, combs the area where the person was last seen. As the weeks wear on, they continue to search vigilantly, uh, holding out hope that they'll be reunited with their family member. Months later, it's getting a lot harder to hold on to that hope, to keep the momentum going. Most missing people who are found will be found within the first 72 hours. Between 2016 and 2019 in the UK, I would imagine the numbers are pretty similar here in the US, 85% of missing persons cases were resolved within a week, 95% within a month, 97% within six months, and 98% within the first year. Clearly, if a year passes and the person has not been found, it is very likely, sadly, that they will not be found. A less than 2% chance. And if they are found, they probably will not be found alive. Missing more than five years and found alive, 10 years and found alive, almost unheard of, but not completely unheard of. But even in those cases, the person who went missing wasn't typically kidnapped. Kidnapping is incredibly rare. Out of the over half a million missing persons cases open in the US each year, only a few hundred will be found to have involved abduction by a stranger. On average, fewer than 350 people under the age of 21 have been abducted by strangers in the United States per year since 2010, per FBI statistics. So a case of someone who is kidnapped, missing more than a year, then found, almost never happens. But there's always the outlier of all outliers. The one case that defies all the stats, and today we are talking about that such case, the Cleveland kidnappings. On the balmy evening of May 6, 2013, a group of neighbors in a Cleveland neighborhood were having their usual chat when something pierced the silence, a scream. Looking over at the nearby house belonging to one Ariel Castro, the neighbors quickly realized something was wrong. A hand was waving out of a broken window. Aurora Marti, Alta Garcia Tejada, and Angel Cordero stared at that hand and then at each other. What was going on? And then a woman shouted, help me. I'm Amanda Berry. Amanda Barry's dead, Aurora yelled back. Everybody knows that. No, the woman shouted. I've been kidnapped in this house for 10 years by Ariel Castro. Soon, not one, not two, but three kidnappings would be against all odds solved. Three missing persons cases, all of which should have statistically never been solved. Now all solved. The unlikely and forgettable story, excuse me, and unforgettable. It's (laughs) that'd be terrible if I was like, hey, do you want to hear a forgettable story? Now, the unlikely and unforgettable story of Ariel Castro and the Cleveland kidnappings, right now, on a both terrifying and ultimately inspiring. I love being amazed at the strength, mental fortitude, and resiliency of the human spirit edition of Time Suck. This
1: is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs> you're listening to Time Suck. <laughs>
0: Happy Monday and happy Thanksgiving, Meat Sacks. Welcome to the Cult of the Curious. I hope you're excited for this incredibly forgettable story. By the end of the episode, you'll be like, what did I even listen to? No, I'm Dan Cummins, uh, Sucktimus Prime, a big fan of used women's bicycles. And you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, praise be to Bojangles, glory be to Triple M. Uh, Today's episode might not seem like a good Thanksgiving choice, but uh, I actually think it's a great one. Stick around until the end. I'll I'll lay out my argument for that. Uh, One cool announcement and a dedication, and then we are off. Uh, We chose a new veteran military nonprofit to donate to uh, this month. We try to do that every November in honor of Veterans Day. Uh, This year, we are donating to the Blue Skies Foundation. The Brotallian Blue Skies Foundation is a veteran-founded nonprofit dedicated to providing post-mishap support for the Army aviation community and their families. They hope to honor the legacies of those who have fallen and provide support to their families. And we'll be sending them $12,884 this month, also adding uh, $1,430 to the scholarship fund for distribution next year. If you'd like to learn more or support the Blue Skies Foundation, please visit the Foundation.org and uh, link in the episode description. And thank you, thank you, as always, to our veteran suckers in the U.S. and those who serve or have served in militaries around the world. Finally, this episode is dedicated to the memory of Officer Nicholas McDaniel of the Post Falls Police Department, who passed away far too soon of a massive heart attack, October 22nd, at the age of only 36. Leaving behind two beautiful boys and a beautiful fiancé as well. Nick was the best of the best when it came to law enforcement. Uh, I met him after he comforted and questioned uh, my wife, Lindsay, after a car accident back in May. He turned out to be a big Time Suck fan. Uh, We chatted about life, took some pics. He was just such a good dude. Lindsay was so thankful to have him come check on her, uh, make sure she wasn't hurt, take down the details of the crash, do everything in such a professional, responsible manner. And Nick lived by several principles. Don't touch it twice, which is do it right the first time. Work harder. Nobody cares. Stop whining. And emotions aside, give me the facts. And I fucking love all that. Hail Nimrod, if Nick would have worked for the Cleveland PD back when today's story took place, I honestly think those girls would probably have been rescued earlier. Uh, thank you to Neil Urrig, Executive Director of the Post Falls Fraternal Order of Police for sending me a memorial sticker in honor of Nick. It's already on my truck's rear bumper. Uh, gone but not forgotten, Nick. And, and not really gone, just somewhere else. See you down the road, Nick. Uh, we'll laugh off uh, some dark shit together. And now for a topic that, as one of the last voted-in topics by the Space Lizards as we transition uh, to different benefits on Patreon, uh, feels pretty dang appropriate. Our wise but devious Uh, space lizards have voted in some of the most fucked up episodes to ever come out of this show. Uh, Episodes that have been in some way or another terrifying. And today's is no different. Might be the most terrifying. It it rivals Joseph Fritzl in in terms of how disturbing it is. Think about situations where being delayed somewhere, like at the airport or in a long line at the DMV maybe stuck on a plane at the airport on the tarmac has frustrated you, right? Just a sense of a loss of control, not knowing when you'll be able to move on, when you'll be able to leave, uh, not knowing if the rest of your day will proceed as planned. Stressful, right? Now look at a slightly bigger situation, the pandemic, for instance. Those early months felt so full of tension. Right? I hated feeling less in control of my life than I'd felt before, at least as an adult. I hated not knowing when I would be able to travel again, when I would be able to uh, travel again without a mask, when I would be able to schedule a stand-up show, not worry about it being canceled, uh, et cetera. I hated, like most of you, I assume, not knowing when things would get back to, quote, normal and feeling trapped in my house, even though here in Coeur d'Alene, uh, you d'Alene, know, being trapped in the house lasted for about uh, a couple days or a week. But still. Uh, for people looking forward to big events, going off to college, graduations, weddings, those were put off indefinitely. Surrendered to the gaping chasm of sometime in the future. Now imagine that it went on for about 10 years, but it was way worse. Imagine being trapped in someone else's house, someone who had tricked you into entering that house, a man you thought you could trust. And now imagine being chained up for that man's sexual pleasure, uh, subject to his deviant games, being violently abused by him. Instead of feeling some sense that at least everyone else in the world is going through the same shit, now this is just happening to you, or you, and another, or you, and two others. Whatever you are imagining, it probably pales in comparison to what Michelle Knight, Amanda Berry, and Gina DeJesus actually went through. Let's get into this crazy story. Uh, not much setup today. This tale does not place, uh, take place a hundred years ago. It is not based in extreme religious beliefs that needs some level of understanding before we proceed. Doesn't require the explanation of any high concept scientific principles. You know, we need to comprehend. The story took place this entry in a major U.S. city. My wife, Lindsay's hometown of Cleveland, Ohio. It began while she still lived there. And when she was just two year, two years older than the first kidnapping victim. Crazy for me to think that she could have easily ended up in Ariel Castro's House of Horrors. So, yes, let's head to Cleveland now. Uh, Very underrated city, in my opinion. Come on, Cavs, let's fucking go! Of 372,624 people uh, inside the city limits as of 2020, and a metro area population of 2,185,825. Home of the NBA's Cleveland Cavaliers, Major League Baseball's Guardians, NFL's Browns, NFL's best defense as of this recording. If only the exceptional Miles Garrett could sack his teammate Deshaun Watson. Maybe hard enough to end his career uh cleveland has the second biggest theater district in the u.s after new york city a lot of culture a lot of beautiful parks so many museums numerous renowned chefs have built one hell of a foodie scene there's a ton of cultural diversity have one of the very best comedy clubs in the nation hilarities shout out to nick costas the owner one of my favorite humans after rebounding from the loss of a lot of auto manufacturing jobs decades ago there's a ton of good jobs now in healthcare with the cleveland clinic Uh, Key Bank, Progressive Insurance, Sherwin-Williams Paints, more major companies are headquartered in Cleveland, providing a lot of good corporate jobs, and it's maybe the most affordable city in America to live in. According to the mayor's office right now, the average sale price for a home in Cleveland, just $117,000. $117,000. Compare that to the national average of $416,000. Fucking love Cleveland. Truly, it gets shit on by a lot of people for reasons that no longer make sense. What Cleveland was in the 80s is not what it is today. I love Cleveland almost as much as the suck versus uh, Toots Martinez. Hey, I'm Toots Martinez, founder godfather, regional charter president for the Cleveland Steamers Motorcycle Club, born and bred in the finest city right here in America. I was in our clubhouse behind the old Homestead Tavern off of Norwood and St. Clair, Superior, when they caught this Castro Turk. He was lucky we didn't get a hold of him first. He's not Cleveland. That's not what we do here. We would have busted him in a thousand pieces and dumped him in the river. If you're in Cleveland, you even think you you see something funny like the neighbors of this guy's south, you call the Cleveland Steamers. We ain't gonna knock on the door, then ride off when no one answers. we're gonna kick the goddamn door in. We cheer on the Browns here. We eat corned beef with slimings here. We take care of one another here. That's Cleveland. Okay, I gotta, I gotta be going. Happy riding, remember our motto. The Cleveland Steamers, when there's barbarians at the gate, You gotta drop a deuce Love Toots He's a good man, tough name, tough name But he's a good man Uh, Cleveland is great, it really is great Uh, But every city, no matter how great Is going to have its share of horror stories And one of those stories, the one I'm telling now Played out for over a decade In what is now my favorite Cleveland neighborhood Of Tremont Time to unfold that story In this week's Time Suck Timeline
1: Strap on those boots, soldier We're marching down a time-suck timeline.
0: July 10th, 1960, Ariel Castro, born in Dewey, Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, suave! I don't know where that came from. Uh, He was the third child of Pedro, Nona Castro, and Lillian Rodriguez. His two older siblings were Marisol Alicia and Pedro Jr., and he'd have a younger brother, O'Neal. Uh, Dui is a tiny village on the outskirts of Huaco, the coffee capital of Puerto Rico. Over many generations, the Castro family became become the preeminent family in the isolated mountainous barrio, uh, owning most of the land in a section called La Para. La Parra. Uh, despite the family's preeminence, however, their living conditions were still primitive. Ariel, born in his father's little wooden shack. Where there was no running water, no electricity. Cooking was done over coal on a dirt floor. Uh, Every morning, Pedro would drive his Jeep several miles down the steep mud tracks to a well, fill up a large plastic water buckets. Uh, He would then haul those things back up the hill so his family could wash and have fresh drinking water. And every day, or close to it, uh, Pedro would also go visit his other family. (laughs) Uh, Ariel didn't uh, learn how to live a double life out of nowhere. uh, His apple didn't in some ways fall too far from his father's tree. Long before he was born, his father had began an affair with a young girl named Gladys Torres, and lived just one house away down the mountain. For the first two years of Ariel's childhood, and for many years before, uh, Pedro lived a double life, dividing his time between his wife Lillian, and their four children, and his girlfriend Gladys, and she would give him another four kids. In 1962, Lillian finally discovers Pedro's double life. She's pregnant with O'Neill, her last child, when she finds out about a years-long affair with the fucking next-door neighbor. After Lillian confronts him, uh, Pedro leaves... Uh, you know, her and leaves the family forever, but he doesn't go far. He packs his bags, he moves out, and he moves in next door with Gladys, and they have their family now. (laughs) That's so fucking weird. They get married soon afterwards, and they keep living next door. Ariel will spend the next five or six years watching his next door neighbors have the father he should have had. That is fucking insane. Uh, Imagine your dad walking out on the family, And then he like, he grabs his shit. He just fucking walks down the front steps and he walks out the front yard and turns left. And then about a hundred feet down the road, just turns left again into your neighbor's front yard and just walks on into their house. And then is living there for the next six years. No longer a part of your family though. Oh, that's uncomfortable. Hey, hey dad, do you mind throwing that basketball back over the fence? Or, or I don't know, maybe coming over sometime and being my father again, like old times. It's terrible. Uh, not all was horrible for for little uh, Ariel, though. His uncle, Sacy Castro, helped him uh, learn to play guitar, and Ariel quickly became a gifted musician and taught himself how to play bass, and he'll play that for the rest of his free life. Uh, sometime in 1968, when Ariel would have been seven or eight, Pedro Castro leaves Puerto Rico with Gladys and uh, the new kids, the uh, new fam, and settles down in Cleveland, Ohio, where he already had some family living there. Pedro had a good head for business, opened up a used car lot on 25th Street and Sackett Ave., which was soon a thriving business. 1969, his brother, Sacy, joins him in Cleveland, opens the uh, Carabay grocery store on 25th and Seymour. They were followed by their brother, Edwin, who opened Cleveland's first Latino record store on 25th Street near Clark Ave. And soon Lillian would also leave and head to the same neighborhood in Cleveland. A uh, little weird, but okay. Two years later, 1970, uh, Lillian moves her family to Cleveland, settles down at 2346 Scranton Road. By now, her ex-husband... And his new family and his brothers have established themselves, you know, successful businessmen, and became one of the leading Puerto Rican families in the city, just like they had been back in La Parra. And they kept Puerto Rican traditions alive, financing a social club, have an annual coffee festival to commemorate their hometown. Then in 1971, the Cleveland Plains dealer reports that FBI agents raided Ceci Castro's Caribbean bodega in a Bolita numbers racket sting. According to the article, agencies cash, guns, numbers, records from 11 family members, including Pedro and Sacy. Uh, September of 1973, 13-year-old Ariel Castro starts at Scranton Elementary before joining Lincoln Road West Junior High School a year later. He was a year behind where he should have been uh, in school age-wise, thanks to not getting the same education back in rural Puerto Rico. He was a below-average student with poor test results for cognitive ability. But he did make the wrestling team, played softball, and he was in the school band. Also got into some trouble. While in junior high, Ariel was suspended for inappropriately touching a girl's breast and then punished again for fighting classmates. September of 1976, Ariel, now 16, moves on to Lincoln West High School, where his elder brother, Pedro Jr., just graduated as a straight-A student. Not so much for Ariel. Uh, he's pretty, pretty you know, average kid. Not the brightest, but competent enough. Uh, really into bikes, classic sports, cars, and music. While a student at Lincoln, he joins his first Latin band, Los Steinos, plays bass with them in some local churches. He's also apparently popular, has several girlfriends, has a bunch of friends who like to drink beer, smoke weed, and party with him. June 30th, 1979, just before turning 19, uh, Ariel graduates from Lincoln West High near the bottom of the class with a GPA of two, 2.15, You know, which translates to mostly C's with maybe a, a B or two thrown in, maybe, maybe a D or two. Over the next several years, he works a variety of menial jobs, including being a bagger and cleaner for the pick and Pay supermarket on West 65th Street. Also began to establish himself as one of Cleveland's most promising Latin musicians, playing weddings, bar mitzvahs, anything else he can get with a variety of other kind of rotating cast of musicians, different bands. Still, he's living at home with mom, two brothers, uh, and so since he's not paying rent these gigs, give him enough money for, for expensive clothes, a sports car, motorbike, musical instruments, Then in early 1980, Lillian Rodriguez moves her family, excuse me, including her freeloading son, to a new house at 1649 Bure Avenue, just about a mile down the road from where they had been living. And in the new neighborhood, Ariel soon notices a shy, beautiful 17-year-old Puerto Rican girl named Nilda uh, Figueroa. Figueroa, excuse me. She lived across the street with her parents and five siblings. They pass each other on the street. He complimented Nilda on her looks, the insecure girl flattered by his attention. One day he invites her to hear him play with his band. She eagerly accepts. Within a week, they are a couple. And that would feel so sweet if I could forget what a complete piece of shit Ariel was. Uh, Later, Ariel will say that he was never in love with Nilda, whose full name was Grimilda Figueroa, but Nilda was certainly in love with him. She lost her virginity to him one night by the banks of Lake Erie. When he drove her home afterward, her mother confronted them. Uh, She told him, that uh, told, you know, her mom told Ariel that he had to now take her, quote. You he had to take her because of what had happened. Oh, boy, mama. Old school idiotic notions uh, and values on display here. You done fucked up. You handed baby girl over to a monster over a hymen. Shame on you, right? Her her puss has been tampered with. There's no protective seal on it anymore. And now it's filthy. Who, who's going to want to ride a bike? Ariel bent the handlebars. Some of the spokes are missing. Now one of the tires squeaks. That very night, Nilda moved across the street into Ariel Castro's room. She'll stay with him for the next 14 years, and her life will be a living hell for about 13 of those years. Around Christmas 1980, Nilda becomes pregnant, and Ariel now finds a, the, the couple a two-bedroom apartment a few blocks from his home. He also gets a job working as a drill press operator for Lesnar Products while continuing to get out make a bit of a name of himself in the Cleveland Latino music scene. The couple's first child, Ariel Anthony Castro Jr., born September 27th, 1981, and this poor kid. His 21-year-old father is delighted he would have Nilda bring, or he'd have Nilda bring the new baby to gigs so he can show him off to everybody, which sounds sweet, but back home, life suddenly not sweet at all for the young family. Nilda will later testify about how Ariel started to attack her soon after their son was born. She said the first time it happened, quote, it was over a small argument. He just punched me in the face, grabbed me by the head, and threw me back against the concrete floor. The second time, he punched me so hard that he broke my nose, end quote. And here we go. Ariel's downward spiral into being more and more uh, comfortable, violently assaulting women gets going. He would spend years steadily becoming the kind of monster who did what he did to those Cleveland girls. After the first attacks, Nilda began wearing a headscarf and heavy makeup to disguise her injuries. She also did her best to appease Ariel, Hoping to avoid future attacks, she would try and follow his rules. Rules like not leaving the apartment without his permission. Wearing long dresses so that other men couldn't look at her. Uh, You know, where she could go grocery shopping. Which brand she was able to buy. On and on. The more rules she followed, the more rules he added. The more paranoid he became about her possibly not following these rules. He'd constantly try and catch her breaking rules by pretending to have left the apartment, but then lying in wait downstairs to listen and spy on her. Whenever he did catch her disobeying him in any way, there'd be a savage beating. Uh, Soon, Ariel is even censoring what she uh, is allowed to watch on TV. He bans the fucking Cosby show because he had a bad feeling that Bill Cosby was a despicable piece of shit serial rapist. Uh, No, he didn't care if Bill uh, was rapey or not. Actually, he probably would have admired Bill if he knew who he really was. No, he banned the show because he was super racist and hated all black people. So I'm guessing she couldn't watch the Jeffersons which is a real fucking bummer. No one's moving on up. Moving on up. She's certainly not moving on up. And no more dynamite. Uh, every night for the last several years of their relationship, this fucking psycho uh, would run his hand over the back of the TV when he'd first get home. To feel if it was warm, see if it had been on recently. If it felt warm, he would check the TV guy to see what shows had just been on. And if, it was, and if there were shows on that he didn't approve of, uh, he would beat the shit out of her. So clearly got off on both controlling and terrorizing her. When Nilda became pregnant again in March of 1982, the beatings became worse. Once when she had morning sickness so bad she couldn't do the dishes, he punched her in the mouth hard enough to knock two of her teeth out. Sounds like somebody should have killed this guy long before he ever kidnapped anybody. I would volunteer. I would happily volunteer to kill people like this. What what was that? He punched his pregnant wife hard enough to knock two of her teeth out because she was ill from morning sickness? Right? Uh, You know what? Uh, uh, are you saying I can take this gun and legally end him and I won't get charged with shit? Can I shoot him anywhere I want? As many times as I want. I accept. Let's fucking dance, Ariel. Around this time, he got a new job working for the Cosmo Plastics Factory. Factory. But with a second child on the way, still didn't pay enough to cover the upcoming bills. So now the couple moves in with Nilda's father to save money. Being in his wife's father's house uh, does not cause Ariel to treat her any better. He still beats her there. Also locks her inside the house on a regular basis. If her dad knew she was being beat and tormented and did nothing, which I imagine he did, I'd be happy killing them both. Maybe just, just hear me out. Maybe if we killed enough people like this, then the world would be so much better for those who remained. I'm not sure it would work, but I think it'd be fun to try. January 13th, 1983, Nilda gives birth to a baby girl who they name Angie. But when friends and family come over to see her, Castro refuses to allow them inside it's getting weirder. After Angie is born, Ariel Castro's behavior becomes more extreme. During one argument shortly after her birth, he shoves Nilda into a large cardboard box, closes the flaps, and insists she stay inside. Clearly, Ariel fantasized about imprisoning women long before he imprisoned some uh, you know, girls that were not related to him, not in a relationship with him. A few months later, Ariel Castro gets fired from the Cosmo Plastics Factory. Not sure exactly what he did. Now the family's on welfare. Uh, He's home most of the time. He uses Nilda's food stamps, not to buy food for the fam, but to buy some cocaine for himself. And after he would get high on coke, he would be way nicer. Everyone knows if you have a violent disposition, snorting fat fucking lines, and often it really mellows you out. And, And it amplifies any gentle tendencies you might have. Or it does the exact opposite of that. Uh, By this time, his toddler son, Ariel Jr., not even two years old, has already learned to keep out of his father's way as much as possible, especially when he's in a bad mood. He's being beaten, too. And is his dad getting in any trouble for any of this? Nope. Uh, He was already real good at hiding what was happening at home and putting on a different face for the outside world. Right? Fun-loving family man musician. On weekends, he's arriving at gigs in his blue Mustang with his bass guitar and his amp, and he's charming and charismatic. He's dressed flamboyantly in a a black silk shirt, got a Panama hat, flashy diamond earring. Even if the band who had hired him had a uniform he was expected to wear, uh uh-uh, he would refuse to change. He was an artist. You don't do something super fucking punk rock like snorting the kids' welfare money up your nose and then not wear your Panama hat for your salsa gig at the Elks Lodge. 1985, Ariel Castro finds another job driving for Kumba Motors, pays more. He moves Nilda and their two young kids into a new apartment, 9719 Denison Avenue. And all of a sudden he's a super good husband and dad and gentle and nurturing. Yeah, right. That's not how these stories ever go. Uh, In their new place, the violence continues. During another argument, he breaks Nilda's nose. Again, makes her swear not to report him to the police before he allows her to go to Grace Hospital. A few weeks later, Nilda's back in the hospital after Castro has repeatedly kicked her in the ribs. which she said something he didn't like. One of her ribs ended up uh, being completely shattered. Yet another time, he dislocates both of her shoulders by twisting her arms behind her back and spinning and throwing her around the bedroom. In another incident, he hits her over the head with a metal bar. Easily could have killed her. Uh, the blow put her in the hospital for three days, split her head open, took more than 40 stitches to close the wound. As before, Ariel made her promise not to call the police before she was allowed to go to the hospital. Although the doctors at Grace Hospital were aware that she is suffering abuse, they are powerless to call on the police without her permission due to existing laws. Still today, doctors are not mandated reporters of domestic violence in many states, sadly. During another especially savage attack in 1987, Castro punches Nilda so hard in the eye he gives her permanent nerve damage. Then in January of 1988, when Nilda's pregnant with their third child, nearly nine months pregnant, fucking slams her over the head with a barbell, sends her back to the hospital. Amazingly, just a few days later, Nilda gives birth to a healthy baby girl named Emily Lissette. September 30th, Ariel almost kills Nilda. Uh, Around six that night, Ariel's brother, O'Neal, arrived at their apartment wanting to go out for a drink. When Nilda asked them where they were going, Ariel started slapping her in the face. How dare she ask him? And when Nilda tries to run away, he grabs her and slams her hard against the wall repeatedly. O'Neal doesn't do shit to stop it. What What a great family we have here. Just a lot of fucking champions in the Castro bloodline. This episode sent me into so many murder fantasies. Just imagine having some dude like this in my family and how I might be able to get away with making him disappear forever. Uh, Finally, Nilda, afraid she's going to be beaten to death, manages to escape, runs up the stairs, gets uh, to her neighbors who call the police. Ariel finally arrested, taken into custody on suspicion of assault. Nilda and her kids taken by ambulance to St. John's Hospital, where she's interviewed by the police. Cleveland Police Department report of the incident states that she told officers she had been Ariel's common law wife for about nine years. Victim states she was assaulted by the suspect on several other occasions, it read, but made no official complaint. Nilda was still too scared to make a criminal complaint this time against Ariel and the police had to let him go and not charge him. No punishment for this motherfucker at all. Still living it up. Still jamming. Hitting those fat bass strings all around town. As a freelance musician, he's jammed with many of the top Cleveland Latino bands of the time. The Roberto Ocasio Latin Jazz Project, uh, Cinti, uh, Grupo Fuego, Grupo Canón, Los Boys del Morengue. Did you know that Cleveland... Also has an amazing music scene. Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, baby! Uh, did you know that John Bon Jovi and Michael Motherfucker McDonald, both members of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? I'll let you add right now whatever song of theirs you want to have in your head for the rest of today. Uh, the term "rock and roll" first coined in Cleveland by Cleveland's own DJ Alan Freed, and the very first rock concert, the Moon Dog Coronation Ball, took place in Cleveland in 1952 for just a buck fifty. Nines nails, Bone Thugs and Harmony, Kid Cudi. Tracy Chapman, Benjamin Orr from the Cars, pioneering R&B group, The Moonglows, so many others from Cleveland. And before jumping back into the story, since I popped out to talk up Cleveland again, let's take our first mid-show sponsor break. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless? A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has zero to one gram of net carbs, zero grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouthwatering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant or the 1 gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. Thanks for not leaving. Uh, Jumping back into 1990. Back into the nightmare that is Ariel's relationship with Nilda. At the beginning of 1990, Nilda becomes pregnant again. Gives birth September 6th to Ariel Castro's third daughter, Arlene, and their fourth and last child together. They were now living in an apartment on West 98th Street and Western Ave. And soon after Arlene was born, Castro gets fired from Kumba Motors uh, for, quote, laziness. (laughs) Moody artists, fucking bass players, right? What do you do? He's too focused on that bass life. Uh, December 11th, 1990, Ariel filled out an application to become a school bus driver for the Cleveland Board of Education. Awesome. If anyone should be put in charge of kids. It's this guy. It's this stable fella. Uh, the application asked what qualified him for the job and what his future goals were. And he wrote, I enjoy working with children. I have a good driving record. I speak English and Spanish. I plan to uh, drive a bus and work with young people. Wow, what a, what a wordsmith. <laughs> to be fair, uh, I don't have stories of him, you know, beating his son into the hospital. So, so I don't know. Maybe not the worst, you know, guy to drive a school bus. I mean, probably better to have him drive a, a school bus than to have him drive around like a women's college volleyball team or something. Listing his clerical skills, he wrote he could use a calculator, an adding machine. Okay, braggart. And he gave the names of three friends as character references. He also filled out an affidavit stating that he had not been convicted of any crime involving moral turpitude, which was sadly technically true. He was very much already morally bankrupt, just not, you know, caught, just not legally. February 19th, 1991, Castro officially hired by the Cleveland School District to drive a school bus at 10 bucks an hour. After taking a road test, passing a physical exam, he reports for training at the Ridge Road Bus Depot. On April 29th, 1992, Ariel Castro, now 32, uh, buys 2207 Seymour Avenue in the Tremont neighborhood from his uncle Edwin Castro for just 12 grand. Only in Cleveland could you find that good of a deal. It's a couple blocks away from his uh, other uncle, uh, Ceci's thriving Caribe Caribe Bodega. It uh, was a two-story white clapboard house on the south side is Seymour Avenue with five bedrooms and a bathroom, as well as a small front lawn, uh, a bigger backyard, and a 760-square-foot basement for 12 grand in 1992. Come on. 227 uh, Seymour Avenue is in a cool neighborhood now, but not so much when Ariel and his family moved in. Seymour Avenue was scarred by race riots in the 1960s, which caused many middle-class residents to flee. They were replaced by immigrants, uh, including many from Puerto Rico looking for cheap accommodation in the booming steel town, and the neighborhood became a low-income neighborhood, but still a very good neighborhood, family-oriented, well taken care of. But then the neighborhood changed again in the late 70s when a new section of I-90 that cuts through the lower 48 from Seattle to Boston was built, plowing through the neighborhood to connect Cleveland to Pennsylvania. Within a few years, Seymour Ave declined into a dangerous, drug-infested no-man's land full of boarded-up clapboard houses and vacant lots. A crack epidemic ravaged the area in the late 80s and 90s. Approximately 70% of neighborhood children would fail to graduate high school in the 90s, 70%. At night, drugs and prostitution ran rampant. Drivers exited off I-90 to get whatever uh, vice they needed, excuse me, from one of the uh, most dangerous neighborhoods in Cleveland. It's one one symbol of stability was the red brick Emanuel Evangelical Lutheran Church at the end of the block. It had been built in 1880. And every Sunday, Pastor Horst Hoyer would ring the bells to call his parishioners to worship. Uh, The church, at least, was still peaceful when Ariel moved in, but the same could not be said for his new house. If his family had hoped to enjoy the additional space, this was not Ariel's plan. He immediately began installing padlocks on certain doors. He turned the basement into a fucking dungeon with a heavy trap door, even added a layer of bricks and curtains to soundproof it. And had the house's uh, windows nailed shut. Clearly, Already actively planning, kidnapping some women, already thinking about really taking their bikes for some real rough fucking rides. Ariel was financing these renovations with his new job. After finishing his training, Ariel Castro became a professional bus driver and actually was earning $14.66 an hour, better than the $10 he hoped to make. Uh, early every morning, he'd leave the house to pick up the kids on his route and then drive them to school. Then at midday, he'd often leave the bus parked on Seymour Ave for a couple hours to tinker on his cars and motorbikes in his garage, maybe fuck around with his uh his dungeon. Soon became a well-known presence on Seymour Ave, chatting up his neighbors, often playing music at their cookouts. Also played his bass on a rehearsal stage uh, at the back of his uncle Sacy's grocery store. Many people thought he was a good neighbor and you know, good dude. They liked to hear him play. But a lot of people would have hated him if they could have seen what was going on inside his house. When Nilda became pregnant again, Castro was furious. He didn't want more kids. He started kicking and punching Nilda in the stomach to make her abort the fetus. He kicked her down the stairs, broke her nose again, fractured her ribs again, dislocated her arms again. And that's not all. He started to literally lock her in the house, ordered her to never use the phone, spied on her constantly, pretending to leave, but secretly hiding in either the basement or the attic. Also started to act pretty bizarrely outside the house. He buys a creepy life-size mannequin, which he clothes in a long dress and a black wig He delighted in placing uh, this uh, female uh, mannequin in the back seat of his sports car, then driving her around Cleveland, scaring the shit out of people. He'd also leave her propped up against a wall in the house as a warning. He would tell his kids, act up again. You'll be in the back room with the mannequin. This guy's so fucking weird. This is why you don't leave your family to start a new life with the family next door. That kind of shit creates somebody like this. Uh, Castro used the mannequin to terrify his wife. One time when Nilda came home with bags full of groceries in her arms, Castro leapt out into the doorway in front of her as she started to walk in, yelling, brandishing the mannequin, scares her so bad she falls down the stairs and smashes her head open again. I I can't believe she ended up surviving this marriage. Uh, Sadly, all of this will kill her, just not during the marriage. Uh, Ariel also doing weird shit in the basement and the attic, two of the places with padlocks on the doors, places he literally never allowed his family to enter. One day, their eldest daughter, Angie, managed to pick the lock on the basement door, sneak downstairs, she found a fish tank with living fish in it. odd because you know there was nobody down there that she knew of to look after the fish. also saw the mannequin and uh, what was uh, what she described as a porch type two-seat swing. Is, is he just sitting down there with his fucking mannequin swinging back and forth watching the fish? Uh, actually, he's probably jerking off to a lot of hardcore porn, as we'll get into later. Uh, she relocked the basement door and her father never found out she went down there, uh, perhaps because he was gone most of the time. Ariel had now joined the Roberto Ocasio Latin Jazz Project and is not just doing local gigs, but also touring the area a little bit. And whenever he's away overnight playing out-of-town gigs, he will literally lock his family inside the house. He also has the windows tinted so no one can see inside. Doors all padlocked. He's the only one with the keys. Nobody in, nobody out. Fucking psycho. In October of 1993, Ariel nearly kills Nilda again. This time, he pushed her down a flight of stone steps, cracking her skull, leaving her with permanent brain damage. Her skull cracked open all the way from the front of her head to the back. So fucking sad, Ariel Jr., now 12, witnessed this whole attack. He felt powerless to stand up for his mom. The last time he tried to, his dad took him down into the basement, whipped him with a dog chain. Then he told him that Ariel Jr. was fortunate not to have a dad who abandoned him like his dad had. For some reason, Ariel never laid a finger on his daughter's. But now in their new house, his wife and son are getting beatings nearly every day. Beatings, that became an open secret to others living on Seymour Avenue. That's why you got to fucking help your neighbor sometimes. Nilda now uh, asking many of her neighbors for protection, but no one wants to upset Ariel. Instead, some of them will just uh, uh, you know, allow her to stay in their homes until Ariel cools off. Now, you got to be a better neighbor than that. right? We should at least try and protect each other. At the end of November, Nilda began suffering from seizures and is admitted to the Cleveland Clinic for brain surgery. During the operation, doctors find out she has a blood clot in her brain, which had hardened into a tumor. When the surgeon asked later what could have caused it, Nilda told him how Castro had thrown her down the steps and other beatings. Doctors said the timing definitely accounted for the size of the tumor, which was inoperable and would eventually prove fatal. But because she didn't want to press charges, when she was discharged the next day, she returned back to her abuser, to a house of horrors. Sunday, December 26th, 7.20 p.m., less than a month after her brain surgery, a drunken Ariel comes home and attacks Nilda again, throws her to the ground, starts kicking her head, kicking her body. When their terrified 12-year-old son runs out the front door to summon help, Castro chases him down Seymour Avenue as Nilda locks the front door and calls the police. By the time a squad car arrived at 2207 Seymour Avenue, Ariel had disappeared. Police officers start a search for him, a few minutes later, a dispatcher orders them back to 2207, where a furious Ariel is now trying to break in. They pull up to see Ariel pounded on the front door, screaming at Nelda to let him in. When he sees police, he flees again, but this time he's caught. These officers chased the arrested mail, caught him in the rear of 2117 Seymour, Lieutenant Cabot wrote in his official report of the incident. At that time, the male was placed in ZC Zone Car and read his constitutional rights, which he stated he understood. Nilda signed a misdemeanor complaint against Ariel Castro, who was then uh, read his rights, taken uh, taken to the 2nd District Police Station, and booked. But then the next morning, a terrified Nilda informs detectives she changed her mind. She wanted all domestic violence charges against Castro dropped. Later that day, however, Cleveland City Prosecutor Richard Cray, Dick Cray, must be a dick in at least 90% of these stories, reviewed the Ariel Castro case in order that it go before a grand jury few hours later, Ariel Castro appears in the Cuyahoga County Court of Common Pleas in front of Judge Shirley Saffold, who freed him on $25,000 bail. Two months later, February of 1994, a grand jury declines to charge him with domestic violence after Nilda denies that the beating ever happened, saying it was her fault. Ariel again gets away with it. Why? 11 years later, Nilda will admit that right before she was due to testify in front of the grand jury, Castro met her in front of the courthouse. Why, why is somebody not fucking keeping an eye on him? He offered her money and a new car, promised to treat her better if she didn't testify against him. When she refused, he threatened to kill her and the kids. He said, quote, look, bitch. Nilda will later testify under oath. If you do, I'm going to kill you and I'm going to take care of the kids. I mean, kill the kids too. And she knew how violent he was, obviously, and she believed him. Frightened for her and the kids' lives, Nilda went into the courthouse, told the grand jury nothing ever happened. But now she did finally move out. She takes their four kids to live with their grandma on Corning Avenue. And Ariel doesn't really seem to care. Within hours, he begins outfitting his house with chain-link fences, uh, mortise locks, deadbolts. He's free to trap somebody else now, multiple somebody else's. Months later, November 29th, 1994, 74-year-old Ernesto Santiago figures out where his new fence came from, uh, you know, where Ariel's new fence came from, when he went to check in on his rental property at 2211 Seymour Avenue and discovers that his chain link fence is gone. And then wouldn't you know it, when you look next door, he sees an identical fence on Ariel Castro's property. Weird. He knocks. (laughs) That's so fucking weird to steal your neighbor's fence and just put it around your yard. He knocks on Castro's front door to ask him about it and then Castro starts screaming at him and tries to hit the 74-year-old with a shovel because he's a cool guy. I wonder if all of this is happening because he's playing in bands that heavily feature percussion, right? Drums, right? Satan's instruments. Uh, Anyway, Santiago uh, beats it, calls the police. The police report is referred to the Cleveland prosecutor who for reasons unknown takes no further action. Going to be a lot of people working in or around law enforcement who do not do shit in this episode. It's very frustrating. So this motherfucker just keeps getting away with just uh, being a piece of shit. Meanwhile, Nilda has to have another surgery. Then while she's doing physical therapy, after her surgery, she meets, she gets close to a hospital security guard named Fernando Colon. Good dude. Rare happy spot in this story. Happy at least for a while. At the end of July, 1995, Nilda and her four kids move into Fernando's uh, house, West 53rd Street, And soon they become engaged. Fernando even gives her a diamond ring, more than Ariel ever gave her. Ariel Castro finds out uh, about all this only after his daughter Emily calls him from Cologne's landline one night. And he is furious now and starts calling the house over and over. Cologne, not scared, tells Castro to back the fuck off or he'll press harassment charges. Castro now attempts to turn his son, now in his freshman year of high school, against his new stepdad. Telling him that his mom Nilda is hoeing because he's classy. And he starts showing up and threatening Cologne, telling him he's going to get him, get him for this, right? Going to, going to pay him back. May 16th, 1996, Fernando files a criminal complaint accusing Ariel Castro of attempting, attempting to run him down with his car. Police report states the incident happened at 7.45 a.m. while Cologne was waiting in his car with the kids for the bus to school. The children's father pulled up behind him, read the report. He walked up to the victim's auto and was very profane. He told the victim that he better watch himself. Uh, when Cologne tried to reason with Castro, he got back into his car, began to drive straight at him. Victim states Ariel Castro would have run him over if he did not get out of his way. This is an ongoing problem, read the report. Uh, the case was sent to the Cleveland prosecutor, who once again takes no further action. Okay. After that incident, to everyone's relief, Ariel Castro starts to back off. He has little contact with his kids after that, staying out of their lives, for the most part, for, for quite some time. He'll call about once a month, see the kids a couple times a year. If only he would say that way. Uh, Four months later, Ariel Castro comes under Cleveland uh, police scrutiny yet again. His neighbor, Ayanna Sykes, sues him over a property dispute. Castro then went over to her house and screamed at her, I'm going to get you, bitch. And do you want to guess what happened when he threatened her? A police report was sent to the prosecutor. And guess what they did? Yeah, that's right. Fucking nothing. January 22nd, 1997. Cuyahoga Juvenile Court Division Judge, Betty Willis Rubin, awarded Nilda uh, Figueroa, full custody of the four Castro kids, completely terminating their father's visitation rights. Uh, If only he would just never visit them again, but that's not going to happen. Ariel Castro doesn't even bother showing up to the hearing, but he will, of course, uh, as I've alluded to, see the kids. Uh, August 12th, 1998, Nilda gives birth to Fernando Colon's son, Ryan. They just moved to West 110th Street. They're still engaged. May 2000, Ariel Castro approaches his 40th birthday and is set up on a blind date by a musician friend of his how how nice lillian rolden is a pretty brunette 16 years younger and very unfortunately is immediately attracted to the stocky now baldy musician with a goatee lillian had known the castro family since she was a little girl her parents came from san lorenzo small puerto rican village she recalled later it was love at first sight he was older than me and i liked that he was very handsome and from the beginning he treated me so sweet Some nights she stayed at his house or he'd come to her house and she'd cook for him. They soon became intimate and Lillian found nothing abnormal about his desires, said he was a good and considerate lover, but that his house left something to be desired. Whenever Lillian would stay over at 2207 Seymour, she would try and clean it up a bit because it was filthy. Uh, Finally, she suggested they just sleep at her place instead. One time over at his house, though, uh, Lillian asked why there was a padlock on the basement door. Casper replied that he kept all his money down there and didn't want his kids, who he said would swing by from time to time, to steal it from him. And then he did, uh, you know, give her a little tour of the basement. In it, he had a bag of weed, Uh, she wasn't interested, and that was kind of that with the basement for her. Soon afterward, Ariel Castro proposes marriage to Lillian, buys her a ruby ring, gets down on one knee at the Detroit Superior Bridge, and she was ecstatic. She wouldn't listen to any of the bad rumors about her new fiancé. When people tried to talk to Lillian about Nilda, she assumed Nilda was just making it all up. Because that's what Ariel said. And she never saw that side of him. And she wouldn't. Ariel had a new plan for how to be a piece of shit and a good guy kind of at the same time, right? How he was going to uh, compartmentalize his love life in a new and terrible way. Be sweet to Lillian and then be a fucking nightmare, a demon to other women and girls. He decided that he just had too many lustful cravings to be satisfied by a wife because he craved some hardcore sadomasochistic sex and humiliation. His basement was full of maybe illegal s and tapes, and he longed to inflict the kind of pain he saw on these tapes on somebody, but he knew it'd be really hard to get away with doing shit like that to a long-term partner with friends and family looking out for her. So he decided, time for a sex slave. Let's meet Michelle Knight. Michelle Knight's life far from easy long before she met Ariel Castro. She was born in Cleveland, April 23rd, 1981, to Barbara Knight. Her dad has never been named. According to Michelle's autobiography, Finding Me, her parents had identical twin sons, Eddie and Freddie. Two years later, from the beginning of her life, she had to uh, fight for space amongst her rowdier brothers in the house provided to them by the by Cleveland Social Services. Barbara supported them on welfare. When she was five, Michelle was molested by a family friend who threatened to hurt her if she told anyone, and that molestation would continue almost daily throughout her childhood. Her mother enrolled her at the Mary Bethune School. But Michelle rarely went to class and was classified as slow. Uh, she struggled to keep up with the other kids who made fun of her, called her all kinds of horrible names. By the time, So she's getting fucked over at school and at home. Uh, by the time she's 12, she's barely made it through the fifth grade. But she loved drawing, could illustrate her textbooks with butterflies, wolves, and big mansions. And she wasn't actually slow. She just was neglected. Age of 13, she ran away from home to escape her abuser. Slept for a while on a park bench in downtown Cleveland, eventually finding a, a highway underpass slept there in a garage at night to keep warm. Over the next few months, the tiny dark haired girl survived on church handouts before being recruited by a local drug gang. They set her up in an apartment, paying her $300 a week as a drug runner. But that only lasted for a couple weeks and then the gang leader was busted and Michelle was homeless again. Soon she was spotted by a family friend who called her father. Michelle's father dragged her back to her mother's house where the abuse started up all over again. At 17, Michelle becomes pregnant reported that the baby was was a result of a gang rape by three boys in a storeroom at school. My God, life is just motherfucking this kid. When she's five months pregnant, her dad leaves. uh, Barbara Knight finds uh, a new dad, an unstable alcoholic. Barbara sadly never seemed to do anything to protect her daughter and provide a safe or stable home. October 24th, 1999, 18-year-old Michelle Knight gives birth to a baby boy she names Joey. She's now living with her mom on West 60th Street receiving social security checks to support her new son. Michelle uh, is a devoted mom. Despite the kind of childhood she's had, she dreams of finding a good job, earning enough money to move out and support her baby, who she nicknames Huggy Bear. But since she never finished high school, options are limited, and her home situation is deteriorating. One afternoon in June of 2002, Michelle comes home, walks into a bedroom to find her mom's boyfriend, fucking drunk, lying on the bed with two-and-a-half-year-old Joey. Uh, Her mom was supposed to be looking for Joey, but had gone out. And then the boyfriend begins lunging at Michelle, making improper suggestions. Uh, Joey is scared. He wets himself. And then the man drunkenly grabs the little boy's leg and fractures his knee. As a result, Joey is placed in foster care. Michelle now moves out of her mom's unstable house, rents a bedroom at her cousin Lisa's house for 300 bucks a month. Her plan is to make enough money to support herself and Joey and get him back. Soon, she will meet Ariel Castro's 14-year-old daughter, Emily, who lived nearby. Uh, over July, Michelle and Emily become friends. Although she's seven years older than Emily, Michelle is used to being around younger children as she'd always been a few grades behind a school. Soon after they met, Emily showed Michelle a photograph of her father whom she called AC uh, on her cell phone and said that he drove a school bus. Sometimes Michelle would hear them talking on the phone and she thought he sounded like a pretty nice guy. Man, would she soon learn differently. Uh, Thursday, August 22nd, Michelle Knight has a 2.30 p.m. appointment with Cleveland Social Services regarding her son, Joey. The office is in a part of downtown Cleveland that Michelle didn't know very well. So her caseworker offered to drive her there. Uh, Michelle turned it down as a relative had promised to take her. But then at 11 a.m., the relative cancels. Michelle decides to walk now since she can't afford taxi fare, right? She, she is trying so hard, this poor kid, to do the right thing for her kid. It's a sweltering hot day. After putting on a white t shirt, cut off jean shorts, and some sandals, Michelle sets out towards downtown and she gets lost. Not knowing what else to do, she goes into a family dollar store on West 106 and Lorraine Ave to call the social services office and ask for directions. Simultaneously, Ariel Castro is driving his old orange Chevrolet around Clark Ave when he spots Michelle. He recognizes her as one of his daughter, Emily's friends, uh, thinking that she's probably his daughter's age. She does look young for her age. Uh, He watched her go into the family dollar, talk nervously to the employees, asking for directions. He realizes what a perfect time to put his plan into action. Strolls up to Michelle, saying he knows exactly how to get to that office she needs to go to. Right? This fucking monster. Michelle immediately accepts. And on the way out, she tells him about her fight to get her son Joey back in the car. She notices uh, there are no handles on the inside of the doors. Bit of a red flag. And a sign on the windscreen says that he had puppies for sale. Castro said he had to swing by his house on Seymour to check on the puppies. And reassures her it's on the way. Around 3 p.m., Castro pulls into the driveway at 2207 Seymour. Michelle says she'll wait in the car. He gets out. He walks to the front gate, back door of the house. A few minutes later, he comes out again, and he asks Michelle to come in and pick out one of the puppies. He's happy to give her a puppy for little Joey, right? Again, what a fucking monster. He doesn't give a shit about her plight, what she's going through, her son. Just his own sick needs. Michelle agrees, and he leads her into the house through the back door. As they go upstairs, she wonders why it's so quiet and why she can't hear puppies barking. She sees the photograph of Emily on the wall. That makes her feel a little bit better. But then he guides her up the stairs into a small pink bedroom, slams the door behind him and locks it, and now she's not feeling very good at all. Michelle screams in fear, pleads to be let out, so she doesn't miss her appointment. As Ariel Castro comes towards her, the smile fades from his face. He puts a strong hand over her nose and mouth, places the other against the back of her skull, pulls off her glasses. He yells, "If I'll kill you if you scream again, and then slams her down on the floor so hard she passes out. When Michelle comes to a few minutes later, Ariel is standing over her. He orders her not to move, grabs her pocketbook, throws it against the wall, uh, goes into the neighboring bedroom to look for something. This is the first time she had the opportunity to look around the room. There are two metal poles set up on either side of the room with a taut cable strung between them. Castro comes back carrying a stool, two orange electrical extension cords. He tells her to lie still, reassures her that she can leave if she just does what he says. He grabs her legs as she desperately tries to kick him away. He starts to bind uh, one of the cords around her ankle so tight, her leg goes numb. When she tries to punch him away, he grabs her wrist, pulling her arms behind her back, binding them together. He then uh, winds the other end of the cord around her neck and ties it. Then pulls down his pants, takes out his dick, starts to masturbate. As he gets off, he tells Michelle that he really wants them to be friends and that he's so lonely. He says, I need you before he climaxes. Afterwards, he orders her to stay still, pulls out a gun, rolls her over onto her stomach, ties the second orange extension cord around her hands, feet, and neck. Using the cable and poles, he hoists her up about a foot above the floor and then stuffs a gray sock in her mouth, winds duct tape around her head, and then leaves. Says he's going to go get some food. Just leaves her there. Little four foot, seven inch tall, shell, suspended, helpless, and terrified. August 23rd, Barbara Knight reports her daughter missing. The missing persons report classifies Michelle as disabled notes that she went by the alias of Shorty reporting person states that missing person, uh, adult has a mental condition and that she is confused of her surroundings a lot. Meanwhile, Ariel Castro is having the time of his life, He'd had dinner at his mom's house the night before, right after he uh, kidnapped and, you know, uh, tortured somebody essentially hangs out happily with his siblings, then returns to 2207 Seymour F. Over the course of that night, Michelle will wet herself several times. Her mouth aches from dehydration. She's faint from hunger. Eventually, Ariel returns with an Egg McMuffin for her to eat. When she struggles, he carries her into an adjoining bedroom, puts her on a stained mattress, and rapes her repeatedly. By the end of it, the mattress is covered in her blood. This motherfucker. Then Ariel pours his heart out to his bleeding victim about his childhood, his kids, his ex-wife, like uh, she's his you know, concerned girlfriend. Finally, he starts to get dressed. Michelle has no choice but to put back on her blood and urine-stained clothes. Ariel now drags her to the basement, throws her down on a pile of dirty clothes. As she squints in the dark, she makes out more dirty clothes and hundreds of porn videos and an assortment of heavy chains. He tells her, this is where you're going to stay until I can trust you. Wraps the chains around her body, padlocks them around her, finally places a motorcycle helmet on her head to muffle her screams. Over the next few weeks, she'll spend most of her time in this state, in darkness. She will spend so much time in in darkness with this guy, her eyesight will be permanently damaged. And he'll keep his life to a strict schedule. In the mornings, he wakes up early, leaves to drive the school bus. Then he comes back to the house, feeds Michelle some stale ass McDonald's hamburgers or the equivalent, and rapes her. Then he goes back to do his afternoon route, spend more time around the kiddies right after sexually assaulting somebody. After finishing work, Michelle will hear him upstairs watching porn, smoking weed. She'll dread the sound of the key unlocking the basement door, know, knowing he is coming down to rape her again. When he satisfied his lust, he'll sometimes throw paper napkins at her to clean herself off with and then ram those occasionally down her throat. He's a real piece of shit. Friends will later remember that around this time, he was the happiest he'd ever been. Uh, he would rape Michelle up to seven times a day, keeping her chained to the pole with the motorcycle helmet on at the uh, all other times. If she complained, he'd beat the shit out of her. She had a plastic bucket for a toilet, ate that one meal a day. About a month after he kidnapped her, Castro brings Michelle out of the basement, back upstairs to one of the bedrooms and chains her naked to a bed. Late September, about a month after she's kidnapped, Michelle Knight becomes pregnant with Castro's baby. He notices her nipples are leaking, asks if she's pregnant. When she says she thinks she is, he attacks her. Over the next few weeks, he starves and beats her. After six weeks, she has a miscarriage. And then uh, for that... Even though he had directly induced it, he punched her in the face. He then picked up the tiny fetus, placed it in Michelle's hands and asked if she wished it were still alive and said that she had caused this death. He's such a sadist. That winter, Michelle almost freezes to death. There's no heating in the house. It's a brutally cold winter. Castro refuses to give her any blankets or clothes to keep warm. She's filthy, hasn't taken a single shower yet since she's been abducted. But for Christmas, Castro gives her a puppy. What a guy. She names it Lobo. Lavishes it with love. But then, when Lobo comes to her defense during one of the beatings she's receiving from Castro and bites Castro, he picks it up and breaks his neck right in front of Michelle. Then he carries Lobo's body out into the backyard, throws it in the trash. Bojangles wishes he could time travel back to Puerto Rico in the summer of 1960 and eat this motherfucker while he's a newborn. Praise Bojangles. I am 100% in favor of that decision. A few days later, Michelle attempts to escape. Ariel finally. Uh, brings her uh, downstairs to the bathroom for a shower and when his back is turned she finds a needle hides it when he chains her up and leaves her work she uses that needle to pick the lock and she is able to get halfway out of one of the windows when she then hears castro running up the stairs she almost escaped panicking she ran back to the bed threw her chains back on but castro was suspicious and ultimately finds the needle as punishment he drags her back in the basement beats her chains her to a pole leaves her for a few weeks few weeks later he brings her back upstairs gives her a battered old television to watch uh, so she'll have something to do to occupy her time few months later april of 2003 michelle gets pregnant again this time castro kicks her in the stomach so hard she falls backward and collapses against the door and then 10 days later she miscarries and amid all this insanely horrific behavior castro keeps telling michelle all about himself his obsession with porn his hatred of black people also just says weird, creepy shit like he wished he could have, quote, gotten to John Benet Ramsey first. Says he wished he could have kidnapped Elizabeth Smart. The fuck? Also tells her he wants to kidnap another girl. This time he says he wants a blonde. And soon he will find one. Before we meet Amanda Berry, time for our second mid-show sponsor break. If you don't want to hear these ads, five bucks a month on Patreon. We'll get you all these episodes ad-free in addition to hundreds of hours of extra content, merch discount, and more. You know what's one of the best things to bring with you wherever you go? Raycons every earbuds. Raycons offer amazing quality audio at half the price of other premium audio brands. There are tens of thousands of five-star reviews speak to that. Your Raycons can go with you everywhere so you can listen at any time. With eight hours of playtime and 32-hour battery life, you don't have to worry about whether they're up for the task. Even though I'm not currently touring, I still travel a fair amount. And I love how small the case is. So easy to throw them in my jacket pocket like I did when Lindsay and I took my grandma to New Orleans. I used them on the plane to help fall asleep to some Nathaniel Rateliff and then Enola, use them at the gym to get pumped up for a quick workout to some Chevelle. Perfect for both places. I was able to easily use noise isolation on the plane to block out flight noises and then switch to awareness mode at the gym so I'm not too lost in my own world and get in the way of others' workouts. Go to buyraycon.com slash timesuck Today, to get 20% off your Raycon order plus free shipping. That's right. You'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash timesuck. Buyraycon.com slash timesuck. One in five Americans have learned a new language on their bucket list. If that's you, make 2024 the year you finally check it off the list with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Babel's quick 10 minute lessons are designed by over 150 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babel's designed by real people for real conversations. Babel has over 10 million subscriptions sold. Plus, all of Babel's 14 language courses are backed by their 20 day money back guarantee. I've been working on my restaurant skills lately. ¿Cuál es el pescado del día? Excelente. Mi encanto, pargo rojo frito. Y gustaría un poco de hueco de naranja fresco. You may not know what I said, but my waiter in Mexico will, thanks to Babbel. Here's a special limited time deal for listeners. Right now, get 55% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash timesuck. Get 55% off at babbel.com slash timesuck. Spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash timesuck. Rules and restrictions may apply. And I'm back. Back to the shit show that poor Amanda Berry is about to join. Amanda Marie Berry grew up less than three miles north of Seymour Ave on West 111th. She was born April 26th, uh, excuse me, April 22nd, 1986 to John Berry and Luana Miller and had an older sister, Beth. Like Michelle, her childhood was tumultuous. Her dad had a history of violence and had served jail time for sexual battery and aggravated assault. God, these poor women. Uh, When Amanda was four, her parents split up and Johnny Cool Dad moved to Tennessee. Amanda would unfortunately visit this dirtbag every summer. Her family nicknamed her Commando Amanda for her firecracker spirit. For middle school, she attended Wilbur Wright, where she was friends with Angie and Emily Castro. She was a good student with the reputation of being a girly girl who wanted to become a fashion designer. Also loved Eminem. On high school, she was in the gifted program at John Marshall. But then she decided to switch to an online school so she could get a job at Burger King. Petite at five foot one, with waist-length blonde hair and an eyebrow piercing. Uh, she donned the Burger King uniform at work, but in her spare time wore Tommy Hilfiger, Nautica, and tons of costume jewelry. Uh, especially favoring a necklace that spelled Amanda and another with a Playboy bunny. She loved to stay out partying, but she drew the line at Hard Drugs. In other words, she was a pretty regular 16-year-old girl. At 2 p.m. Monday, April 21st, Amanda Berry kissed her mom goodbye and left for her shift at Burger King. It was the day before her 17th birthday. Mom busy with last-minute preparations for her party, and Amanda planned to leave Burger King that afternoon to get her nails done and buy a new outfit. There was a stack of gift-wrapped presents on her bed. At 7.36 p.m., Amanda officially clocked out of uh, Burger King, said goodbye to her coworkers, started walking north on West 110th Street, still wearing her Burger King uniform with her black bag slung over her shoulder. As she walked out of the parking lot, Ariel Castro drove past her in his maroon Chevy van. His daughter, Arlene, was in the passenger seat, after he drops her off nearby, he doubles back. Rolling down the window, he asks if, uh, you know, she needs a ride. And thinking she'd seen her classmate in a, in the van a moment ago, she agrees. But as soon as she was in the van, she notices Arlene isn't there. Ariel chatted to her now about uh, Ariel Jr., who used to work at that same Burger King, and Angie, whom Amanda knew. But soon Amanda noticed they were zooming past her house. When she asked him why they were going this way, Castro replied that he was taking her by his house to see Angie. A few minutes later, they arrived at 2207 Seymour, and Ariel Castro pulled into the back of the driveway. He invites her inside to see his daughter, leads her in through the back door, into the kitchen. Castro tells her, uh, taking Amanda up some stairs, Angie could be in the bathroom. On the way, they pass a closed door with a large hole in it. Amanda peeks inside, sees some fucking lady, asks who it is. Uh, She replies, or he replies, excuse me, it's my roommate." Castro now leads her into a bedroom and Amanda starts getting nervous. She tells him to let her go or she'll call the police and now he attacks her. He throws her to the ground and rapes her. Afterward, he duct tapes her wrists and legs together, tapes her mouth shut, puts a motorcycle helmet over her head, carries her downstairs into the pitch black basement where he chains her around the waist to the large center support pole, just like he had done with Michelle. When Amanda didn't arrive home later that night, Luana Miller immediately knows something is wrong. Amanda is always punctual and and she loved her birthday. Furthermore, Luana knew her daughter would not leave somewhere uh, without coming home and change it into her beloved clothes. At 1230 a.m. Tuesday morning, Luana goes to the 1st District Cleveland Police Department office on West 130th Street to report her daughter missing. As police begin to investigate, Luana continues to call all of Amanda's friends and prints flyers, which she distributes around town. And soon a suspect will emerge, just not the right one. So much collateral damage in this episode. It'll be poor DJ Diaz, a 16-year-old that Amanda was dating. She'd met him when she took his order from Burger King's drive-thru window. When detectives interviewed him, he confirmed that she'd called him a couple times that day. He'd been out all night searching for her when she didn't meet up with him after her nail appointment. I'll be honest with you, DJ told detectives. I think she was kidnapped. Meanwhile, Ariel Castro now has Amanda's cell phone. He's listening to the increasingly frantic voicemails left by her mother, sister, and DJ. He'll even erase them to make room for new ones, right? This real life monster is getting off on all this pain. Monday, April 28th, one week after Amanda went missing, Cleveland's WEWS 5 let off a 10 o'clock news report with this story. A tearful Luana Miller appeared on camera, pleading for any info to find her daughter. Uh, Ariel watched the newscast from his living room. A few minutes later, he picks up Amanda's silver cell phone, dials Luana Miller's number on speed dial. I have your daughter, he told her. She's healthy and Okay. When LaWanna asked to speak to Amanda, he hung up. But then two minutes later, he called back. He said Mandy was going to be his wife. LaWanna recalled in 2005, he wanted to marry her. Mandy wanted to be with him. And then he hung up. And that's the last I heard. <laughs> My God. After dialing Amanda's number and leaving several messages, LaWanna called FBI Special Agent Robert Hawk, who was leading the investigation. Hawk believed it might be a hoax. And then Amanda was part of it, as the caller had said that she was fine and would come home in a couple days. I'm sure this belief will come back to haunt him. Uh, Bomber, they couldn't yet trace very uh, many cell phones due to their physical location or to their physical location back in 2003. Or they could have found him, you know, with this uh, with these calls. Michelle also watched the news broadcast that night as Castro had told her to. She immediately realizes that he had kidnapped another girl, but it would be several weeks before Castro brought a young blonde woman into Michelle's room. He told Michelle to hide her chains under a blanket. Castro introduced Amanda as his brother's girlfriend, but she knew who she really was. Michelle felt sorry for her. The room was covered with rotten sandwiches and pizza slices and smelled like urine. It'll be months before these two captive girls saw each other again. May 3rd, 2003, the Cleveland Plain Dealer ran its first story of Amanda Berry's disappearance in its law and order column. Under the headline, Cleveland FBI searching for missing girl, it offered a reward for any info leading to her whereabouts the one who was doing everything she could to keep her daughter's story in the news. She went to the studios herself, handed out flyers to the broadcasters. Meanwhile, DJ continues to be a prime suspect. Uh, Detectives believe that his flashy sports car, a white Dodge Intrepid, was too nice to be owned by a 16-year-old, so they impounded it. It Seems like a fucking dumb dick move, but okay. Also gave him a lie detector test, which he passed. Uh, Meanwhile, even though Ariel Castro has now imprisoned two girls, he still has his girlfriend Lillian Rolden swinging by. But Lillian heard Michelle's TV one day, and soon after that, Castro stopped inviting her over. He'll now stay at Lillian's house instead. A couple weeks later, Castro took Michelle to Amanda's room. Both girls were naked. Nonetheless, they hugged. Then Castro left them alone for a few minutes. Uh, they realized they remembered each other from school. Soon Castro came back, took Michelle, chained her up in her room again. Although the two captives were chained up in adjoining bedrooms, they were too scared to talk to each other, even when Castro was out working. He just you know, controlled them. That's uh, you know, thoroughly. Over the first year of Amanda's imprisonment, they saw each other only six times. On several occasions, the teenager would break down crying and Michelle would comfort her, telling her everything was going to be okay and they'd get home someday. Michelle also couldn't help but notice that Amanda seemed to be getting better treatment, better food, better living conditions, fewer beatings than her. And if Amanda managed to fight off Ariel's sexual advances, he would go and rape Michelle. That August, in the midst of a sweltering summer with no air conditioning, Michelle Knight becomes pregnant for the third time. This time it takes, you know, with Ast- Ariel's baby. This time uh, it takes Ariel months to make her miscarry. Motherfucker literally jumped on her stomach, punched her, and starved her for weeks. August eighteenth, two thousand three. Almost four months after Amanda went missing, her mom holds a prayer vigil outside Burger King West on a West one hundred and tenth Street. By the time uh, that time, she thought Amanda must have gotten into a car with somebody she knew, and she knew that someone had Amanda's phone and was erasing her voicemails. Meanwhile, since Luana was on the TV so much and Michelle had a TV, Michelle would blast it whenever Luana came on. So Amanda in the joining room would be able to hear her mother. September 1st, Ariel Castro makes his TV debut uh, playing live in the Fox 8 studio in a pickup band for the morning news show. How fun. The smartly dressed bassist looked like he didn't have a care in the world, just smiling for the camera. It's fucking soulless. Uh, There's more TV to come. October 21st, 2003, Luana Miller interviewed on WEWS TV. Uh, in a story marking the six-month anniversary of Amanda's disappearance, watching the news that night at Seymour on Seymour Avenue is Ariel Castro and Michelle Knight. As the one who sobs and pleads, Ariel Castro taunts Michelle, says, "At least someone's looking for her. But who's looking for you? Not a soul. That's because you don't mean nothing to nobody." Such a sadist, so cruel in so many ways. Late October, Ariel breaks off his relationship now with Lillian. Why? Well, because he wanted to kidnap a third girl. And, you know, he just he couldn't find time in his schedule to have three girls tied up in his house in various rooms and have a fiance that that doesn't know about him. Uh, The search for Amanda Berry during all of this still very active. Saturday, November 15th, the top rated TV show America's Most Wanted features a segment on Amanda's disappearance. For months, Luana Miller had been pitching the producers to run a segment on her daughter, and that persistence finally paid off. The day of the show, FBI Special Agent Robert Hawk told the plane dealer that investigators now believed The mysterious telephone calls to Luana the week after Amanda went missing had come from her kidnapper. Yeah, no shit. Apparently, Agent Hawk, such a good FBI agent name, by the way, was just now coming around to the idea that she had not run away. And it seems, unfortunately, that Ariel Castro was right about Michelle. Five days after the broadcast, Cleveland uh, Police officially remove her name from the FBI's National Crime Information Center database for missing persons. A Cleveland police spokesman would later explain it had been removed 15 months after she went missing as they had been unable to contact Barbara Knight to establish if she had maybe been found. Not sure why they wouldn't err on the side of her not being found yet. Uh, January 11, 2004, Ariel Castro's father, Pedro Castro, dies and leaves behind an estate worth more than $260,000. The successful used car dealer's money was split equally amongst his nine kids with each receiving $11,037 after taxes. What a fun windfall for Ariel. Ariel also left a 1997 Chevy Malibu valued at $1,500. Leaves that to, or yeah, he's also left by his dad. Uh, Two weeks later, Cleveland police arrive at 2207 Seymour Ave to investigate Ariel Castro for abduction and child endangerment, but not for what you're thinking. Uh, That morning, Castro had picked up two elementary school kids who had to go to different schools. After dropping off one of the kids, he then drives to a Wendy's (laughs) to grab some lunch and orders the remaining child, a four-year-old boy, to just hide in the back of the bus. He screamed at this kid, lay down, bitch, as he locked up the school bus and went into the restaurant. He just fucking eats his lunch while the scared kid's hide in the back, returns to the bus, drives around for a while, and then drops off that kid at, at the elementary school. Two hours after picking him up. Why would he do this? He's a fucking lunatic. It's never made clear. Uh, Ariel doesn't answer the door for police and then they never follow up <laughs> this incident. There's going there to be so many more examples of this. It's fucking crazy what's going on here with law enforcement. Uh, the incident also investigated by child and family services and they found that for some reason, the complaint against him was uh, unsubstantiated, which it, which it wasn't. Uh, he was later brought before a Cleveland school district disciplinary hearing and suspended from work for 60 days without pay. How was he not fucking fired? For just led to forcing a kid. Just basically kidnapping a kid for two hours. Lay down bitch. I'm going to eat some Wendy's. Four year old. Uh, the same month. On the last day of January. Robert Ocasio. Leader of Ariel's band. Tragically killed in a car accident. Ariel uses the opportunity to make himself seen as a loving caring friend. Who will do anything to help his deceased friend's family. So that's cool. Uh, late March 2004. Ariel Castro comes into Michelle Knight's room. And unchains her. Tells her that a new girl would soon be arriving. And she had to help him prepare another room. It's going to be so much fun. She has to help drill holes in the walls to put the chains through. Castro up in the ante this time. He's not kidnapping some random girl off the street, but instead he's going to kidnap the daughter of a trusted friend. This sick fuck. Ariel had gone to school with a man named Felix de Jesus, both coming from two of Cleveland's most prominent Puerto Rican families. Felix's 14-year-old daughter was named Georgina. Everyone called her Gina. Gina was also best friends with Arlene Castro, his daughter. Uh, Ariel had uh, clearly been uh, eyeing this kid for a while right each victim younger than the last that is not coincidental 2 30 p.m friday april 2nd the two girls leave wilbur wright middle school together walking towards west 105th street and lorraine avenue it was a rainy afternoon gina was wearing a white coat sky blue sweater jeans and white tennis shoes her long curly brown hair tied up in a ponytail Uh, they plan to go to Gina's house for a few hours, but Arlene needed permission from her mom. She calls Nilda from a payphone. Nilda says she's grounded for bad behavior. Gina said, it's okay. She'll walk home instead saying uh, bye to Arlene. She heads down the street. Few minutes later, Ariel Castro arrives at Wilbur Wright middle school in his maroon Jeep Cherokee looking for Arlene after getting permission from a security guard. He uh, had gone into the school, but couldn't find his daughter. Then he came out, started driving around. Later, he'll tell police that sex was on his mind when he first spotted Gina outside the school with his 13-year-old daughter Arlene. Fuck, said he uh, had been attracted by Gina's cleavage. It was it was her fault. Her shiny new bike had a shiny new basket hanging off the front of her handlebars, and he had to ride it. So Castro made a U-turn, headed back. Immediately, saw Gina by herself, rolling down the window. He asked if Gina could help him find Arlene. Then, once she's in the car, changed the story. Says, uh, hey, can you help me uh, move this speaker in my house? It's too big for one person. She agrees. Now, this is her friend's dad. When they arrive, Castro leads her up to the back door, uh, takes Gina upstairs, brings her into the bathroom. Where, out of fucking nowhere. He asks her to show him her privates. She becomes understandably very uncomfortable. She asks to leave. Castro says she can, but she's going to have to leave through a different door. And then instead of leading her outside, he leads her down in the basement. Where, he's put plastic tie, where he puts plastic ties on her, on her wrists and chains her to the pole. And now he has three women. Well, technically, at this point, two women, one barely of legal age, and now one young girl trapped in this nightmare. 3.45 p.m., 10 minutes after Gina usually arrived home, her mom, Nancy Ruiz, uh, walks to the corner store to check if she's there. Then she starts calling Gina's friends. They hadn't seen her. 5.09 p.m., Nancy reports her daughter missing to the Cleveland police, saying Gina's behavior is out of character and she is very concerned. A uh, missing juvenile went to school and never returned home, read the Cleveland police report. Last seen by school, Wilbur Wright, after school let out. Nancy told police that her daughter was normal and healthy, but is mentally around the age of nine or 10 years and attends special ed classes. She then gave officers a photograph of Gina. Meanwhile, a detective called around to all Cleveland hospitals and the morgue, but there was of course no record of Gina. An investigator also interviewed Arlene Castro, the last known person to see Gina, but all Arlene could say was that Gina was headed home. Poor Arlene and all this too, right? She's going to be fucking crushed when she finds out her dad was behind this. Saturday morning, a bloodhound tracks Gina's scent from the corner of West 105th to the end of the block on West 104th, just past the payphone there, but the trail then goes cold. And then a different trail, a fucking wrong trail, leads back to DJ Diaz. Fucking DJ, another victim of Ariel Castro. Around midday, DJ left his house to find it surrounded by Cleveland police. As police escorted him to a squad car for questioning, his neighbors applauded, thinking that Gina's kidnapper had been caught. I got, I wonder if you later had some words with those people. Imagine being arrested at your home for a crime you had nothing to do with. And as you're being led away in handcuffs, your neighbors just applaud and cheer. I knew it. I knew it. You got the right guy. Then you see them after they've caught the real guy. How fucking awkward. Thanks, dicks. Uh, that Saturday, a whole bunch of people searched for Gina including her abductor, he is very good at being very bad. How much did he delight in seeing all the trauma he caused as he's searching for the girl who was locked up in his house? At 10 p.m., WEWS-TV, uh, their news breaks the story of Gina De Jesus's disappearance, linking it to Amanda Berry's. Gina disappeared from the same neighborhood, where Amanda disappeared almost a year before. On Sunday, April 4th, FBI now joined in the search for Gina. Her parents set up a command post at their house where flyers are distributed by friends and family. Now Ariel Castro starts to get paranoid. He thinks he may have gone a step too far. Late Sunday night, he writes a four-page handwritten confession with numerous crossings out. Uh, If he did claim, or excuse me, in it, he did claim straight up that he was a sexual predator, but also accused his three victims of being pretty responsible for their own kidnappings. And he greatly downplayed the domestic violence he had dished out it's uh, so self-serving the confession reads like it does with so so many of these pathetic assholes uh, as some woe is me narcissistic victim mentality deflect the blame bullshit right it's everyone else's fault starts off confessions and details to the best of my knowledge i was born in puerto rico <laughs> you fucking knew you were born in puerto rico i was a, <laughs> such a weird way to start to the best of my knowledge i've had such a hard life it's hard to keep track of where i was born and stuff I was abandoned by my father and later my mother. My grandma raised me. I was abused sexually by the son of Luis and Felia. His name is Pucho. He penetrated my rear a couple of times. I was five or six years old. I soon learned how to masturbate. I was interested in sex at a very young age. Sex has always been a too big part of my life. I married at age 20. I lived a normal life with my wife and children. Mm -mm, No, you didn't. But But my marriage was a failure from the beginning. My mother was an abusive parent. Her ways of discipline were very bad for this made me grow hatred for her. There were times I wish she would die. Anyway, my marriage was abusive also. My wife would hit on me and push me to the limit. Oh, Oh yeah, he was beaten by his mom and also his wife. Him saying this makes me question everything he said about his childhood other than his dad abandoning him, right? That's been verified by other people. But the rest of the shit, did his mom abandon him? Was he molested? Others won't back that up. Uh, His wife for sure did not beat him. No one else has fucking ever said that. I'm not sure exactly how big she was, but I've seen numerous pics of Ariel and Nilda together, and she looks tiny, way smaller than him. I would say no more than 5'1", maybe 5'2", but maybe more like like 4'11", 4'10". Very petite. Ariel, not a big guy himself, 5'8", not very muscular, but huge compared to her most of these guys like that most these guys are not like physically dominant guys they just find tiny people to fucking pick on they're just little fucking wimps themselves most of the time uh he beat the fuck out of her all the time Uh, he continues with i hit her back she put me in jail only to get me out and apologize to me this happened a couple of times but the name con and arguments were always there i tried to reason with her that the kids did not need to see or hear the arguments or fights Why is he lying so much in a confession letter? I felt bad to see my children frightened and scared. My wife always said she didn't give a shit if they were, and then the next word is indecipherable or not. The marriage lasted about 12 years. I always loved and still love my children. (laughs) No, no one else would remember any of this shit happening this way. Then he goes, about six years ago, my wife left me for another man. I didn't mind as long as my kids and in a good home. This man did nothing for the children. I kept taking this in, but they were better off with their mother. I can't understand why this man took the trouble to finish raising my kids when he knew I was in a relationship as a father. My ex-wife has many problems with this man and just can't get out of the relationship. No, no, by all accounts, know this new guy, Fernando Colon, a great dude. This literary fucking genius, this wordsmith goes on. I lived alone for the most part after my marriage. I had a good sex drive. I was in relationship with the woman I cared for. I met a woman at Family Dollar on Clark, (laughs) Jesus Christ. I met a woman. The woman needed to ride somewhere. I brought her to my home. Michelle has been there ever since, about two years. I brought her to my home. What a nice way to describe kidnapping someone. Did you kidnap her? And I brought her to my home. I brought brought her to my home, wouldn't let her leave. Is that kidnapping? You tell me. Uh, That is kidnapping. Uh, I got another opportunity, he says now, to get another woman in my van. (laughs) Fuck, another opportunity. This girl is Amanda on West 110 Walking Home. I asked her if she needed a ride home, and she said yes. I brought her to my house. She's been there for about a year, smoking her pot cigarettes that I provide. <laughs> for fuck's sake. He didn't kidnap a teenager. He immediately started raping. Nah, he just, he he found another opportunity to, to help somebody live in his house, to have another girlfriend, to give somebody some pot cigarettes that he could provide to them. <laughs> Who fucking says pot cigarettes? You guys smoking pot cigarettes? Uh, I hate, I, like, nothing about this guy is fucking cool or good. Just nothing. Uh, some people should just never be born. Uh, these two women accepted money for sex, he said. I treated them, <laughs> I treated them well and make sure they eat good. Is this a confession letter? Or like a fucking weird, like, fan fiction about his horror show? Then he writes, I just don't understand why I keep looking for women out in the street as I already had two in my possession. One day I was driving down Lorraine Avenue and near 105 a woman was walking. I think you mean young girl. I asked her if she needed a ride. She agreed. Yeah, because she fucking knows you. you're you her friend's dad. I called me, drove her to my house. This girl is Georgina. I asked her to come inside. She said yes. These women are here against their will because they made a mistake by getting in a car with a total stranger. You're not a fucking stranger and it's not their fault. God, this guy's such a piece of shit. Uh, next she says, I had no idea Gina was so young. Well, yeah, you did. You knew exactly who she was because she's your daughter's friend. She looks a lot older. Also, not knowing she is the daughter of Felix, a school classmate of mine. The bottom line is I'm a sexual predator who needs help, but I don't bother to get it. I live a private life. I function around others like a normal person. I've been having problems with my head for a long time. I feel depressed, dizzy, and short term memory loss. I feel oh no, I really it's indecipherable what he says next. No what's wrong with me. To the parents of these three women, I would like to say I'm very sorry. I am sick. Five years ago I was diagnosed with a cyst in my brain. Not true. I don't know if this has made me behave the way I do, not have any feelings for the bad things I have done. I can, next word indecipherable, the public. These three women are the only ones I have done harm to. Not true. Holding them against their will. When I wake up in the morning, I don't feel like I'm really here. This is a big problem in my everyday life. I mean, that would be a big problem if you just would wake up and not feel like you're here. I want to put an end to my life. Oh, fuck, if only you would have. And let the devil deal with me. I feel so bad about the age of Gina. I will admit I did molest her, but did not rape her. I actually feel the closeness to her and her parents. I do not have the urge to touch her. I feel it is wrong. <laughs> he's, a, he's a good guy, really deep down, you know? He's not he's not going to touch her. I mean, he's going to molest her, but he's not going to do more than molest her because that's wrong. That is wrong. And if we know one thing about Ariel Castro is that the dude has a strong moral compass. If something's wrong, ha, he's not going to do it. He, he won't. Doesn't matter what you say he won't give in to peer pressure. He won't, you can't make him. Uh weird that he supposedly feels so bad but just won't let him go now. Then he tries to explain when he will let them go, but of course it's just more bullshit. Anyway, my intentions are to let these women go when I feel I have arranged everything, so my family knows what to do after I take my life. I have a dollar bank account with about $10,875.21. <laughs> <laughs> it's weird to me that he says, "I have um, I have a dollar bank account. I don't know exactly how much is in it." <laughs> If I had to guess, I would say $10,875.21. Uh, and then he says, I have cash, about 11000 in cash under the washing machine. That's it. Do not look for more money. There isn't any more. My family will need to know this. I would like the money to go to the three victims for they deserve every red cent of it. Again, I apologize. And then adds in parenthetical, sorry. Yeah, we know what apologize means, you fucking moron. To everyone, this whole ordeal has affected. To my children, please be strong and make the right decisions. Just because you may think you know someone Do not get into their vehicle. This was the case of Amanda and Gina. Nilda, please do your best to ensure my babies are safe. (laughs) If possible, move away, far away. As I write this letter on 4404, 2.05 p.m. My symptoms are clearly bothering me. Dizziness, not really feeling like I'm here. Also depression. I know I'm sick mentally. After writing all this out, he folds it up, puts it in a fucking drawer in his kitchen, and it'll just stay in that drawer for the next nine years because he's a sad maniac. Uh, for the meantime, Gina's disappearance, and by association, Amanda's, is front page news, subject to countless city council meetings and round-the-clock searching by the De DeJesus uh, family. For some reason, while investigators used everything from bloodhounds to security videos from stores near the middle school, nobody got their hands on the security camera footage from the middle school itself. If they would have, they would have seen Ariel and probably saved these girls. I don't know what happened there. It's never explained. Maybe the footage was erased. Who knows? Maybe just incompetence. A lot of that is going on in this episode. April 9th, two thousand, four. Castro calls the FBI to help the investigation, <laughs> but not helped He calls the he calls the FBI to throw the investigation off. He tells them Fernando Colone, his kid's stepdad, probably did it. This dude just loves to ruin lives. He said Colone had something to do with kidnappings, but then Colone uh, is uh, interviewed, passes a polygraph, and his car has no evidence of Gina De Jesus ever being in it. As an FBI agent is driving home later, Colone advises him to take a close look at Ariel Castro as a possible suspect, but the FBI. Never follows up on that tip. (sighs) Once Castro uh, felt himself in the clear, he used some of his inheritance money to buy himself an SUV, right? He he needed something nice after all the stress he'd been under. He also pinned up one of Gina's missing posters in the bedroom where she was imprisoned just to be a fucking dick, just to let her look at it. Simultaneously, Michelle began to piece together that the new girl in the house whom she saw only a handful of times was Gina de Jesus. Uh, Meanwhile, that April, Amanda Berry turns 18, marking a year since her kidnapping. If she's dead, says Luana Miller on a news broadcast commemorating the day, can somebody out there tell me I'm living in hell? Castro probably taped her saying that and then beat off to it a thousand times. First week of May, the FBI's Quantico-based behavioral analysis unit, the BAU, arrives in Cleveland to build a psychological profile of who might have taken Gina. The unit, which specializes in missing children cases, advised that Gina's missing posters should be in both English and Spanish and an aerial map of the path Gina took from Wilbur Wright the day she disappeared should be given to the media. All of that was done, but by June, things still not looking any better. June 1st, 2004, $20,000 reward offered for any info leading to the discovery of Amanda Berry or Gina DeJesus. A couple of days later, the 22-year-old Bowling Green University journalism student, or a 22-year-old Bowling Green University journalism student named Ariel Castro Jr., yes, this guy's son, writes an article for the Cleveland Plains community newspaper. He writes about how radically his old Cleveland neighborhood had changed since Gina had disappeared. Around this time, Ariel Castro, senior, brings Gina into the pink bedroom with Michelle. Several days earlier, he removed the small bucket Michelle had been using as a toilet, replacing it with a larger white plastic portable one. How compassionate. He orders Gina onto the dirty mattress with Michelle, padlocks a long rusty chain around Michelle's neck, and attaches the other end to Gina's ankle. When Gina asked how they were supposed to go use a toilet, if her leg is chained to Michelle's neck, Castro unlocks the chains, shackles their feet together now instead, and leaves them there. Throws some t-shirts and sweatpants on the bed for Michelle who was still naked. Uh, the two girls would go on to develop a friendship of sorts. Ariel even gave them notebooks so they could keep journals, draw pictures. So weird. Most prolific writer was Amanda Berry, who would use the journals to mark the passage of time, chronicle her everyday life as a prisoner, as well as the horrible sexual abuse she was suffering. Her blue journal, as she called it, detailed her sexual abuse. Another called Miss Shady handcrafted items, uh, contained her personal notes and a black journal, Titled Love, contained a passage in which she described herself as a prisoner of war and she wrote letters to her mom. Most nights, Ariel would come into the pink bedroom and rape Michelle or Gina as they gripped the other's hand for comfort. He would also beat them in front of one another, although Michelle would always be hit harder, it seemed. Uh, even so, Michelle would still try and jump in front of Gina and take blows for her. Uh, meanwhile, Ariel now starts acting strangely towards his daughters, Arlene and Emily. He's lavishing them with money, gifts, iPods, expensive clothes even gives each of them a $1,000 from his dad's will and starts asking them some pretty fucking weird questions. Stuff like, are you sure you started your period or did somebody stick their finger up your vagina? That's a direct quote. Are you sure you started your period or did somebody stick their finger up your vagina? Who fucking says that? What does that even mean? Does he want to go uh, take one of his daughters now? Just go full Fritzl? In late July, Ariel told Nilda uh, he still loved her, asked her to dump Fernando and move in with him. Uh yeah, just have everybody trapped in the same house. Uh, Nilda tells him she'll never come back. Wednesday, July fifteenth, two thousand four. Ariel Castro brings Emily and Arlene into the Cleveland Police Department's First District Station, and then they then they then accuse Fernando Colon, their stepdad, of sexually molesting them. Why would they say that? Because Ariel coached them to say that. That's how shitty he is. I don't know why that surprised me when I first read it. He's full evil. Nothing he does should surprise anybody. He bribes his daughters to say this shit about Fernando, part of a years-long plan to take down Fernando Colon. But his plan had one problem. As Castro no longer had custody of his daughters, Nilda was then called in to sign a release form. When Nilda arrives at the police station, she's greeted outside by Ariel Castro, who's laughing. He's excited. He says if she goes along with the complaints, he'll buy her a new car. Thankfully, though, she turns him down. Then Castro suggested after Emily and Arlene talk to the police, they should all go out to dinner together. Nope. Turns him down for that. Six days later, Ariel Castro now drives his daughters to the Justice Center where they repeat the allegations to Detective Arthur King there. With their father looking on encouragingly, uh, they tell the detective how their stepdad had been touching them for years. Emily said in her statement, I was about eight or nine years old and I woke up to him touching me under my clothes. We slept upstairs, they had a bedroom downstairs, and every night around 12 or 1, he would come into our room and just feel under my clothes. Arlene gave a similar statement saying Fernando first molested her when she was seven or eight. And sadly, this time, this bullshit works. Few hours later, police arrest Fernando Colon on suspicion of kidnapping and rape as he protested his his innocence. When he was later released on bail, this poor motherfucker moved out of his house into a nearby hotel where he probably fantasized, I hope he fantasized, about killing Ariel slowly and painfully. Maybe with a blowtorch and a bunch of salt to rub in the burns. Uh, By the fall of 2004, life is going great for Ariel Castro. Not only had he successfully kidnapped three women who he continues to rape daily, his vendetta against Fernando Colon is working like a charm, and he's uh, also ruining Nilda's life by doing that, right? Oh, and work is going well. How fun! Despite his suspension for leaving that young boy in the bus, remember that when he decided to head in, grab some Wendy's, lock a four-year-old in the bus, you know, yelling at him, "Lay down, bitch!" before he shuts the door. Despite that shit, the Cleveland school district gave him a raise. He's <laughs> making seventeen twenty-six an hour now, so that's super cool. There's so many people making so many great decisions in this suck in Cleveland. It's a great city now. Maybe not so much 10 plus years ago. Inside 2207 Seymour Castro now begins to refer to Amanda as his wife, gives her a new color TV. Most evenings, uh, Michelle and Gina will hear Amanda going downstairs to Ariel's room where the two will spend hours watching TV together. Also start taking Michelle and Gina out of the backyard to rape them on the ground now. Uh, littered with barbed wire, rusty tools, decaying tarp, just, you know, shaking things up a bit. Just getting off on further defiling them. Also, maybe getting off on risking one of them yelling out, maybe being caught. Still, the neighborhood has no idea. However, some do wonder why he's bringing so much food into his house all the time. November first, two thousand four, grand jury indicts Fernando Cologne, Nilda's husband, on twenty-eight charges of rape, kidnapping, and molestation. <laughs> the fucking irony. Ah, the case to the grand jury was based solely on Emily and Arlene's pressured statements set up by Ariel even though they couldn't give specific dates when the alleged molestations had occurred. This motherfucker was a wrecking ball, just damaging lives all around him. Then the next month, December 15th, Nilda swears on an affidavit, or swears an affidavit that accuses Ariel Castro of manipulating their two daughters to frame Fernando on rape and kidnapping. In the document, she outlines Ariel's years-long record of abusive behavior, and how he suddenly begun to take interest in his daughters that past June. Something else weakened the case against Fernando. Soon after her stepfather's arrest, Emily Castro was expelled from high school, found a job at a, as a cashier at Dave's Supermarket, and went to go live with her Aunt Sonia. And you know who else was living with her Aunt Sonia? Fernando Cologne, awaiting trial for allegedly molesting her. Uh, I feel bad for Nilda, Fernando, Nilda's kids, the three girls Ariel kidnapped, some of his neighbors, just so many people in this suck that he victimized. Jumping ahead to the following spring, April 2nd, 2005, marked the one-year anniversary of Gina de, de Jesus's disappearance. That night, the family holds a vigil where Gina was last seen. A week later, FBI releases a sketch of a person of interest in the case wanted for questioning in connection with Gina's disappearance. The green-eyed Latino man with the goatee had been seen near Wilbur Wright Middle School shortly before Gina went missing, described as being between 25 and 35 years old, weighing between 165 and 185 pounds and about 5'10". Height, a bit off, could have been wearing, you know, I don't know, shoes with some thick heels or some boots. But the sketch looked uncannily like Ariel Castro. Just a couple days later, April 21st, will mark the second anniversary of Amanda Berry's disappearance. Uh, she turned 19 a few hours later. And to celebrate her abduction, not her birthday, Castro gives his captives a special dinner with a cake. This motherfucker actually held an abduction celebration. Happy kidnap to you. Happy kidnap to you. Happy kidnap to Amanda. I'll never let you go. Like that kind of shit. This would be a tradition of having a celebratory dinner on each anniversary of each girl's abduction. Straight up psychological abuse. Over the next few months, Ariel Castro starts giving his captives a little more freedom in strictly controlled doses, of course. No longer keeps them chained up all the time and they're free to roam around their darkened rooms. Weren't able to see daylight since he'd boarded up the windows. Uh, couldn't use the bathroom. Instead, plastic toilets in their rooms, which he rarely emptied. Uh, conditions were so poor that the girls regularly would suffer from painful bed sores. Castro also started to use other forms of violence to control them. He would repeatedly rape and beat the girls in front of each other, employ the same kind of cruel tactics he'd used uh, on Nilda before as well. He would tell them he was going out, then hide outside the doors. Then if one of them tried to open the door, he would beat her, chain her to the pole in the basement again, sometimes for weeks. If they disobeyed him, Castro would threaten to hurt somebody else in the house. He would starve them. He would take away their toilets. In the summer, he'd leave them in a sweltering hot attic. In the winter, he'd put them down in the freezing basement. Castro also installed a series of mirrors inside and outside the house so he could monitor everything more effectively, drilled little peepholes in the bedroom door so he could spy on his prisoners, carried his Luger revolver around at all times, saying he wouldn't hesitate to shoot them if they tried to escape, and sometimes he would also make them play Russian roulette with him, as in they would hold the gun up to his head, and he'd ask them to pull the trigger. Girls never knew that his gun was always empty. Uh, Perhaps the cruelest weapon of all was allowing them to watch the rest of the world go by on their TVs including their families looking for them as they are continuing to be held in captivity. In early June of 2005, Arlene Castro breaks down, tells her mother that Fernando Cologne never ever touched her inappropriately. This poor kid never asked for such a piece of shit of a, a father. Next day, Nilda brings Arlene to Cuyahoga County Prosecutor John Costco's office to repeat the story that her stepdad had never molested her. But once inside the prosecutor's office, Arlene clams up, she's afraid of her dad and now insists, no, never mind. I was telling the truth. Uh Early July, Emily Castro, now 17, discovers she's pregnant. Father is a young man named D'Angelo Gonzalez, who had recently moved in with her. Terrified of what Ariel might do if he finds out, Emily and Gonzalez relocate to Fort Wayne, Indiana, moving in with her elder sister Angie, who's now married there with children. Uh, and with so much family drama going on, uh, Ariel starts to get worried about them finding out about his other life. One night, Ariel Castro rounds up his captives, brings them downstairs gives him brown wigs and sunglasses to put on before leading them out the back door in chains. Then he walks them across the backyard into his garage where he instructs them to climb into his maroon Chevy van and then he chains them up. He tells them, if I hear a sound, I will come out here and kill all three of you. Castro then gets into a sports car, drives 227 miles to Fort Wayne, Indiana to drag Emily back to Cleveland so she can testify against Fernando Cologne. His trial begins August 30th. Accused, again, 28 criminal charges of rape, kidnapping, sexual molestation. He will plead not guilty. And the trial will, be then, uh, uh, will then take place in front of Judge John J. Russo without a jury. Under oath, a visibly nervous Emily testifies that her stepdad first molested her when she was eight or nine. She could describe a second incident, but not a third. Then she just uh, looked entirely blank. Next day, she's cross-examined by defense attorney Robert Ferrari. He asked if she'd ever told her mother that she did not want to testify. No, Emily said. Then he asked if her father had promised her money and presents to testify against Fernando. She kept denying everything he said, but Ferrari had Emily's police statement in which she had said exactly that. He made her read it out loud. That afternoon, Arlene took the stand. She was a week away from her 15th birthday and testified that Fernando molested her since the age of seven. Ferrari then asked Arlene about her expensive cell phone. How had she gotten the money to pay for it? Of course, Castro bought it for her. Ferrari also uh, showed that it was Castro's idea that Arlene spend more time in his house But she denied that her father had bribed her. Thursday, September 1st, Ariel Castro takes a stand to testify against Fernando. Dressed in a smart suit and tie, he looks relaxed, confident, the fucking balls on this guy. And he testifies to some bizarre shit. You know, like like that he had one day come home, back when he was married to Nilda, to find Nilda in the bath, and then his half-brother hiding upstairs in the attic. It's never happened. Uh, Castro testified that he had ordered his half-brother downstairs and then demanded he unzip his pants and show him his dick. (laughs) Castro explained, I just wanted to see if there was some kind of visual evidence that they were having sex. Totally. I mean, you know what? I think that is a pretty standard reaction. You know, that's not crazy. Uh, Whenever my wife, Lindsay, has been alone with another man in our house, one of her friends' uh, husbands, uh, my dad, uh, her dad... (laughs) one of my son's friends, I always insist, just to be safe, of course, on just a quick dick check, just a quick little dick check, nothing weird, just whip your dick out, let me wipe my finger down the shaft, give a little little sniff, and just make sure everything's kosher, (laughs) can you imagine, anyway Castro, well he doesn't have to imagine, maybe he did weird shit like that, I don't know, Castro said he was so upset, that he had left home for a day or two, uh, but he said he never laid a hand on her, after that incident, he said, he said, uh, Nilda became more and more difficult to deal with. Indeed, she uh, he said she had been the one to abuse him. According to Castro, it was Fernando Colone who had started menacing him. He's just a victim, you know. Castro explained because he's a security guard and he carried a weapon. He tried to intimidate me with it. He basically told me to stay away. But yeah, he probably did, and for good reason. Castro denied that his beatings had ever led to Nilda being hospitalized, saying she was not saying he was not responsible for her brain tumor. That after she, she fucking threw herself down the stairs, okay. Uh, that afternoon, the defense called Ariel uh, Anthony Castro Jr. as its first witness. The bearded 23-year-old testified that his dad held a grudge, a long grudge against Fernando, and this brave young man, Hale Nimrod, said he didn't believe for a second that his sisters had been molested by their stepdad. Good on him. Truly impressive. Final witness for the defense is Nilda Figueroa, who told the court how she had left 2207 Seymour because of Ariel's horrendous abuse. She showed the judge a scar on her forehead from when Ariel... You know, beat her with a metal pipe. She testified that Ariel Castro brought their daughter's fancy or bought their daughter's fancy presents, expensive cell phones, iPods and clothing in exchange for testimony. In Friday's closing arguments, Cuyahoga County Prosecutor John Costco asked what possible motive Emily and Arlene Castro would have to lie on the stand. Costco answered, what reason would Castro or he asked, excuse me, what reason would Castro have to do this to this guy? Everything was directed at making Mr. Castro some kind of bad guy here, said Costco. How is Mr. Castro a bad guy? He's told by his daughters. Excuse me. He's told this by his daughters. He does exactly what he's supposed to do. He goes to the police station and makes a report. The irony. The defense attorney then calls Ariel Castro's sworn testimony outrageous. How do we know he was lying? Ferrari asked. His lips were moving. He said he had no idea why he would be brought into the court process. He never touched Nilda. He never threatened her. He never threatened the girls. I love Ferrari. Maserati got spaghetti. Maserati got spaghetti. Maserati bugada got spaghetti. Luigi pizza pie. You get it. Or you're new here. Uh, Ferrari said there was no evidence they had ever been molested by their stepdad, questioning why they had suddenly come forward with their story after so many years. What we do have in the way of evidence, he continued, is that the dad is obsessed with their sexuality, obsessed with Fernando, asked them point blank, even to the point of being so bizarre and so intrusive and so violative, via it's like violation, but violative. Okay, of personal self-respect of saying, well, you have your period. Is it your period or did somebody put their finger in there? Now it's time for the judge to decide. On Tuesday, September, September 6th, Judge John Russo convicts Fernando Cologne of four counts of gross sexual imposition relating to Emily and Arlene Castro. Son of a bitch. Did acquit him of the remaining counts. Judge Russo found that Cologne was not likely to engage in future acts of sexually violent offenses, deleting the sexually violent predator specifications from the guilty counts. Two months later, Judge Russo sends Cologne to three years of supervised community control and ordered that this innocent man needs to register as a sex offender. That same day, Nilda Figueroa tells Fernando Colon that she and Arlene were moving to Fort Wayne, Indiana, and that the relationship was over. My God, this guy just had his life fucking ruined by trying to do the right thing by Nilda and her kids. Meanwhile, a triumphant Ariel Castro drives back home to celebrate his victory. He's on cloud nine. He must feel like a fucking god. Never gets in trouble for being a monster. But he can lie and scheme and get other innocent people in all kinds of trouble. I would like to get a fucking photo of his face mocked up for target practice at the gun range. I have, I have felt more rage going over this than I have in a while, even though we've covered people who have, you know, fucking killed lots of people. For some reason, this guy may be my most hated person of 2023. Castro went back, uh, gathered his captives from the van, bringing them inside in the same disguises they'd left in. It was the last time uh, they would leave the house for almost eight years. Uh, except for maybe in the backyard, uh, I say that because there was some weird shit witnessed by neighbors later. But they wouldn't—they wouldn't, uh, you know, go into the garage, I guess, or any other structures for years. Once a temporary temporary order of protection for Nilda expired, Ariel Castro now has a completely clean record once again. Over Christmas, two thousand five, Amanda Berry's mother, Luana Miller, hospitalized for pancreatitis and other serious health issues. Two months later, March second, she dies of heart failure in a rehab center in Lakewood, Ohio. She died of a broken heart, said Luana's sister, Teresa Miller. After all the stress, she would say, I can't eat. I don't know if Mandy ate. Uh, My sister was a very strong person, but it took a lot out of her. Michelle and Gina learned of her death on the TV evening news. A few hours later, Castro unlocked Michelle and Gina's chains, let them walk around the second floor. Michelle wandered over to Amanda's white bedroom, went in saying she was so sorry about her mother. Amanda looked puzzled. Asked what she was talking about. Michelle realized she didn't know. And she broke the sad news that her mom had passed away and Amanda began to cry. add insult to injury or injury to injury. a Couple weeks later, Amanda becomes pregnant with Ariel's baby. She had morning sickness, began throwing up, and over breakfast in the kitchen, complained of nausea. That night, Castro told Michelle that he thought Amanda was pregnant. Michelle replied she probably was. Castro smiled, seemed pleased. Michelle then begged him to take better care of Amanda during her pregnancy than he had with her. Over the next few months, as Amanda's belly began to grow, Castro kept her away from the other girls. Also started treating Michelle even worse than before, feeding her stale leftovers once a day, allowing her only one shower a week. She was also now the only one he would physically hit. And she thought she knew why. Her spirit still wasn't broken. She defied him every chance she got, thinking of her baby. While she wasn't broken, she was scared. Castro would threaten to cut open her uterus end to end, showing her a black rubber chain he said he would tie through it. He hung that chain right in front of the door to the room uh, where she slept in to remind her. That summer, the summer of 2005, Michelle and Gina heard a child's voice downstairs. Few minutes later, Ariel Castro came into the room saying he was taking care of his eldest daughter's uh, aunt, eldest daughter, Angie's young son, and wanted to bring him upstairs. And then this psycho brought his grandson into Amanda's room, proudly introduced him, then brought him into the pink room to meet Michelle and Gina. So bizarre. Kid was so little. But they still held out hope that maybe he would realize something was off about all this and say something. And possibly he did. Several weeks later, according to Michelle Ariel, uh, according to Michelle, Ariel Castro's two eldest daughters, Angie and Emily, arrived at 2207 Seymour to search the house. They brought along Angie's husband and Emily's boyfriend to help. Michelle thought hoped that they become suspicious that something bad was going on. Shortly before they arrived, however, Castro unchained all the women, marched them down into the basement, chained them to the pole in the middle, stuffed dirty socks in their mouths, said so if anyone made a sound while the family was there, he'd kill them. A few minutes later, Michelle heard voices upstairs and a woman demanding that, they, that he unlock the basement so they could go down there. But Castro told his family that the basement was under renovation and it was flooded. For the next three, uh, next three weeks, the women remained chained down in the dark basement. Every night, Castro would come down, take one of the girls upstairs to rape her, then bring her back down. Finally, Castro brought them all back upstairs, put Amanda by herself in the white bedroom, put Michelle and Gina in the pink one. In early December, as Amanda Berry entered the final stages of her third trimester, Michelle Knight also becomes pregnant for the fourth fucking time with Ariel's baby. After missing a period, Michelle told Gina that she was pregnant and terrified about what Castro would do to her this time. Uh, when Castro found out, he starved her for three weeks and forced her strangely to drink some soda. He thought that might cause a miscarriage. When it didn't, he kicked and punched her in the stomach until she did lose the baby. My God. Uh, Christmas Day, 2006. Amanda Berry goes into labor. Ariel brings her down into the filthy basement to give birth. After her contractions become stronger, Castro orders Michelle, still recovering from Castro, aborting her own unborn baby against her wishes, into the basement to deliver Amanda's baby. In preparation, he had bought a black plastic children's swimming pool for Amanda to sit in so there would be no mess. Suddenly, Amanda pushed. The baby's head came out, but it started turning blue from lack of oxygen. Michelle said she had to get the baby out right now. Push as hard as possible. The baby does come out, but it's still not breathing. Castro screams and Michelle tells her that it's her fault. Michelle begins breathing into the baby's mouth, doing compressions with her fingers. Then the baby starts screaming. She's alive. Michelle saved that baby's life. Michelle is so strong. In the story, it blows my mind. Castro names the baby Jocelyn. uh, Keeps the placenta in his refrigerator as a memento. I don't know. Psycho probably jerked off onto it later or something. Uh, Soon he'll take off Amanda's chain so the baby won't have to see, you know, uh, her mom like that. Jocelyn will move into Amanda's room where Amanda will spend her days taking care of her. New baby seemed to raise everybody's spirits. Ariel Castro now saw his hostages and his new daughter as a family of sorts. Uh, Which, of course, meant that he still didn't hesitate to beat them. But it was still, I guess, happier on the whole. Three months later, on April 4th, 2007, another Castro does something horrific. Ariel's 19-year-old daughter, Emily, repeatedly slashes her 11-month-old baby's throat with a knife. She had recently stopped taking her medication for bipolar disorder, believed that her boyfriend, D'Angelo Gonzalez, had slept with her two sisters and mom, and that all of them were conspiring to kill her and take her baby. Thankfully, at the time of this incident, Nilda is there, grabs her granddaughter out of Emily's arms, runs into the street, screams for help. After Nilda and the baby leaves, Emily attempts to commit suicide by stabbing herself. And when that doesn't work, tries to drown herself in a creek behind the house. Meanwhile, out in the street, Nilda desperately flags down a young student named Heather Powell, shows her the baby bleeding from deep cuts to her throat. Heather thought the baby had been bitten by a dog called 911 uh, and reported an animal attack. A passing nurse attempted to stop the baby's bleeding with a tool. Uh, Towel, excuse me. After the paramedics and uh, police arrived, Emily gave herself up, covered in blood, mud, and water, arrested for attempted murder and battery. Next day, Emily told detectives about her delusions and how uh, if she was going to be murdered, she wanted to take her baby with her. Uh, Thankfully, her baby will survive. Meanwhile, back in Casa Castro, on April 22nd, 2007, Amanda Berry celebrates her 21st birthday and fourth anniversary of her abduction. That summer, Castro was still highly visible on the Cleveland Latin music scene, so that's cool. Most weekends, uh, he's playing at clubs uh, you know, with various bands, living his best life, having a great time. Uh, he's now mostly playing with Grupo Fuego, one of the top Latin bands in Cleveland, but usually late for practices and gigs, so much so that they will fire him. Uh, they and many of the groups he played with thought it was weird that he seemed like he could never leave his house for very long, even though he supposedly lived by himself. Uh, Tuesday, January 15th, 2008, Emily Castro goes on trial for the attempted murder of her baby daughter. Waiving her right to a jury trial, Emily, who had been found competent, was pleading an insanity defense, facing uh, 20 to 50 years in prison if convicted. Since the attack, the baby had made a complete recovery, was living with her father, D'Angelo Gonzalez. In his summation, Judge Serbeck said that her family had exaggerated or ignored what happened in the past to support their family member. Then he convicted Emily Castro of attempting to murder her daughter, saying mental illness did not equal insanity. A month later, the judge sentenced her to 30 years in prison, suspending the last five years to be served as probation. One dangerous Castro, now in prison, not the most dangerous by far. Uh, That one, uh, the one who did so much to contribute to his daughter's mental illness, I imagine. He's still kicking ass. Thursday, June 12, 2008, Ariel Castro is stopped by the police, though, for driving his motorcycle without a license or helmet. Officer Simone noticed that Castro seemed incredibly nervous, but Castro simply explained, yeah, he's a school bus driver and having this on his record could get him fired. Once he saw that Castro's record did come up clean, lets him off with a warning. Yeah, awesome. He just keeps catching breaks. Meanwhile, his daughter, Jocelyn, grown into a toddler and beginning to talk. And Ariel Castro now gives his prisoners aliases. He orders them to use their real names, uh, to never, excuse me, use their real names again in case his daughter ever realizes who they are. He renames Michelle Juju and Gina becomes Chelsea. Pootie and Juju fan perhaps? I hope not. I don't want to imagine him enjoying America's premier early 20th century comic book. Too little, too little, Pootie. Put it in your lunchbox, Shirley. I don't want him enjoying those fucking well-crafted lines. Amanda, for some reason, gets to keep her name. Uh, Soon afterwards, he removes their chains because Jocelyn starts pulling on Michelle's and saying stuff like Juju lock." Every evening after work, is now bringing everybody into the kitchen for dinner, a little family dinner. Uh, Michelle often holds Jocelyn, gently rocks her to stop her crying while Gina cooks a meal. Castro chats away uh, to Amanda about his day like uh, she's his wife. Occasionally, they'll all gather in the living room then to watch his favorite TV show, Keeping Up with the Kardashians, while he makes obscene comments about Kim Kardashian and uh, the Kardashians' choices in men. During the long days, the women are still locked in their bedrooms. They'll pass the time by making Jocelyn clothes, usually out of dirty old t-shirts. Sometimes Jocelyn uh, will wear these clothes to church. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Uh, Castro's a man of faith, uh, not sure about his sex slave souls, but his soul is clean. Castro begins taking his infant daughter to church every Sunday for a while now, telling people it's his girlfriend's baby. He's also shooting home videos of himself, playing with Jocelyn, acting the part of a devoted father. At the same time, developing new demonic ways to torture his sex slaves. After raping the women, sometimes now he starts to throw money at them, telling them he's paying them for their sexual services like their prostitutes. And now when they need something special from the store, he demands that they pay him out of the money he's given them for prostitution. The fuck is this all doing to their minds? I'm so surprised they didn't end up with a severe form of Stockholm syndrome or something. Early 2009, Arlene Castro posted a photograph of Gina de Jesus on her MySpace page. Now reinventing herself as a hardcore rapper, Sherry Elise, Arlene captioned the photograph with This is Gina de Jesus, 19 years old. She's been missing since April 2nd, 2004. I pray in my heart that she is okay. I love Eugenia. No idea. Her dad's behind us still. A couple months later, Ariel uh, will once again have a brush with the law. At around four in the afternoon, April 3rd, 2009, Ariel makes an illegal U-turn in heavy traffic outside Robinson G. Jones Elementary School. Several teachers watching horror as he puts a busload of students in danger, immediately reporting him to the Cleveland School District. Two weeks later, Castro stands in front of a disciplinary board on charges of disregarding his passenger safety and negligence. His boss, Ann Carlson, writes to this disciplinary board. It was not only dangerous to the students and other motorists, it was totally unnecessary. I recommend a 60-day suspension. Just fire this motherfucker already. Castro persuades the school principal, uh, Josh J. J Gunvelson, to write a letter on his behalf. And he wrote, I did not witness what occurred, but I do want to say I've known Mr. Castro to be an effective bus driver. He barely ever, barely ever uh, yells at four year olds to lay down, bitch. Now, he says, I-, I have witnessed him trying to work with students, families and myself to handle student issues. Uh, nevertheless, he does get a 60 day suspension unpaid. A few months later, though, his local team's uh, representative appeals the sentence and reduces it by five days. During his suspension, Ariel Castro drives to Fort Wayne, Indiana to visit his son and two daughters. Before leaving, uh, he had warned them that he could not stay the night and would drive straight back to Cleveland. He'd have to. While he was in Fort Wayne, though, he he has car trouble. He gets real upset. Despite his his family's pleas to stay over, get it fixed the next day, Castro tells him he has to get home and feed the dogs. I have to get home and feed my sex leaves. I I mean uh, dogs that are not human. Meanwhile, the outside world has still not given up hope that the missing women might be found alive. On October of 2009, Oprah Winfrey devotes a special show to Cleveland's missing children, focusing on Amanda Berry and Gina de Jesus. And the Jesus family joins forces with Amanda Berry's family to campaign for what they called Amina's Law, as in Amanda and Gina, to improve the handling of missing persons cases across the U.S. They wanted missing persons parents to be given a written explanation of police responsibilities and their rights, plus an outline of the investigative process. Love that. Subsequent report released in April, 2010 by the city in a 900 page document found more than two dozen problems with how Cleveland's police departments handled missing persons cases and recommended a separate unit be set up to deal with them. A couple days later marked the six year anniversary of Gina's disappearance. November of 2010, neighbor Anita Lugo. hears a pounding sound coming from her neighbor's uh, Ariel Castro's house. Looks up. She's a woman and a baby through the window, half boarded up by a piece of wood. That woman was Michelle. Anita immediately calls the police. When an officer arrives and nobody answers the door after he knocks a few times, he just fucking leaves and doesn't follow up ever. This shit is maddening. Soon afterward, another neighbor, Juan Perez, is in his basement with his sister, and they hear screaming coming from Ariel Castro's basement, and they call the police. Once again, police come over, they knock on the door, nobody answers, and so they leave and never come back. How is this kind of shit not taken more seriously by law enforcement? I'm honestly curious. Shouldn't they have kept coming back over and over until someone finally did answer the door? I mean, there were reports of hearing screaming women in the basement. Shouldn't an officer, I don't know, maybe laid down in front of the basement window, shouted out, hey, does anyone need help? Anyone being fucking tortured by a lunatic in there? Something, anything other than just knocking on the door and then be like, oh, well, just taking off. Guessing, sadly, officers were uh, used to getting called out for false alarms on a regular basis. Hopefully that was a, a, at least a part of the problem as opposed to just complete incompetence. Don't fucking, don't false report, meat sacks. You fuck it up for people with real problems. Uh, inside, Jocelyn has uh, grown up into a sweet and precocious four-year-old now. Never left the house. Ariel will take her, well, no, I'm sorry. Never, I, I don't know why I said that. <laughs> the others haven't left the house. She has left the house because her uh, fucking dad has taken her out to play at a local park in the afternoons. And just keeps telling everyone it's his girlfriend's child. I'm still taking her to church. Uh, when he visits his cousin, Nelson Martinez in nearby Parma, he'll bring along Jocelyn, introduce her as his granddaughter. Uh, even takes her to some of the shows during the day when he's out driving a school bus. Amanda will homeschool their daughter, teaching her how to read and write, uh, turns her bedroom into a nursery, putting up paintings on the walls. When Castor comes home from work, Michelle will hear him unlock Amanda's door and take Jocelyn downstairs to play. And they'll spend hours watching cartoons, uh, Castro laughing and chuckling, just having a good old time. April 21st, 2011 marks eight years since Amanda Barry had first been tricked into walking into 2207 Seymour Avenue. She turns 25 the next day. That summer, Ariel Castro's grandmother, Hercilia Carabello, dies in Reading, Pennsylvania. Lillian Rodriguez, Ariel's mother, had moved there a few months earlier to take care of her mom. The whole Castro family attends the funeral except Ariel, which seems weird. But no one, of course, you know, connects his behavior to holding missing women captive. November, a woman named Alisi Cintron is walking home late one night when she sees a little girl standing out of an attic or standing out, uh, you know, and, excuse me, standing by an attic window. Like in, inside it at two twenty. I can't talk, 2207 Seymour Avenue. Excuse me. When she gets home, she tells her brother, Israel Lugo, about the strange little girl in the, in the neighbor's window. She asks Israel to go check it out. And when he sees the window is boarded up now, he calls the police. Once again, they stop by, they knock, no one answers, and they drive off and never follow up. A few weeks later, Lugo's niece, Nina Samulich, now sees a fucking naked girl wearing a dog collar walking around Ariel Castro's backyard. She was walking around naked, said Nina. We thought it was funny at first, but then it was weird. So we called the cops. They thought we were joking, and they didn't believe us. They don't even even come to the house this time. Cleveland PD, clearly not an A-plus fucking department at this time. You know, Sonny Hollister is disgusted. Soon afterwards, some residents in a retirement home on Scranton Street, which overlooked Seymour Avenue, now see three naked girls in Castro's backyard on all fours crawling around. A woman calls the police, and the police never come. The fuck is going on? Cleveland PD clearly has some cops who need to lose their jobs. No pension, no severance packages. Get your shit, get the fuck out. So we can find someone who's not a worthless sack of shit to replace you. Someone who thinks, I don't know, maybe you should check in on a house. Where three naked women have been spotted fucking crawling around on all fours in the yard. <laughs> next day, what is going on that they didn't have time for that? The next day, Ariel Castro erects an eight-foot fence with chicken wire and blue uh, tarp. And then he lets trees and bushes become overgrown so people can't see into his backyard. So no one knows what's happening. February 14, 2012, the Cleveland School District discovers that Ariel Castro... Drove his bus uh, off-route, has been driving it off-route every day to go grocery shopping at Mark's Superstore. He was spotted parking his school bus outside the store at 3.10 p.m., going inside. 25 minutes later, he comes out carrying three large shopping bags full of food. He's suspended for another 60 days without pay. And he's warned, this, this next offense will be your last. Wednesday, April 25th, Neil de Figaro sadly, dies of brain cancer at the age of 48. Her relatives had no doubt as to, you know, what caused the cancer. Ariel and his brother turned up. This is so fucked up. Ariel and his brother, not invited, turn up at Nilda's wake and to the horror of her family, drink heavily and crack jokes. How is this allowed? He's not a physically intimidating dude. How did no one ever just fucking beat his ass? Meanwhile, during the long hot summer of 2012, Michelle and Gina get hit by bedbugs. Ariel Castro had originally found their filthy mattress in an alley. Over the years, it had become heavily stained with semen and blood. When Gina first woke up, itching and covered in tiny red dots, uh, they thought it was chickenpox. Then Michelle actually saw a bedbug crawling on the mattress, realized what was going on. Castro brought in a plastic sheet, placed it over the mattress, which did nothing to stop the bedbugs. The two women continued to spend the sweltering summer uh, being eaten alive by bedbugs and now sweating on a plastic sheet. In September, Michelle becomes pregnant for the fifth time by Ariel Castro. Soon after, Castro brings home some hot dogs slathered in mustard because Michelle, very allergic to mustard. At gunpoint, he makes her eat the hot dogs. Immediately, her face swells up and she can't breathe. And he locks her in a a room. She goes numb as her entire body uh, is burning red, begs Gina to kill her, but Gina won't. After four days of agony, the reaction subsides and she's still pregnant. 9.30 a.m., Thursday, September 20th, Ariel parks his school bus uh, 978 outside of the Scranton School and heads home. School principal Troy Bedling becomes concerned when he notices the yellow bus parked outside his school. It's blocking the emergency lane used by the fire department. After making repeated appeals to the driver on the school's public address system, as well as checking all the restrooms for him, as well as going inside the bus, which is empty, he calls the Ridge Road Bus Depot to report an, ab- an abandoned bus. Uh, four hours after leaving it abandoned, Ariel returns, drives it away for his afternoon route and then is ordered to appear at another disciplinary hearing. It'll take place October 4th, then November 6th, finally fired after nearly 22 years of service. After losing his job, Castro sinks into a deep depression, becomes more violent. Poor fella, he, he just can't catch a break. He stops rising early for his morning routine, right? Because he doesn't have it anymore. His hostages soon notice that he's no longer wearing his bus driver uniform. And now he has time to assault Michelle all hours of day and night. Also starts taking Jocelyn out more with him on shopping trips. When people ask who she is, like his own brother, Pedro, uh, he'll say usually that it's his girlfriend's daughter and the mom is busy and they believe him. Later, Castro will tell detectives that Jocelyn has started asking him why he was locking Amanda, Michelle and Gina in the rooms whenever he went out and that she was starting to beg him to not lock them in anymore. Had these women not uh, escaped soon, would he have killed them all? Shit is getting harder to hide. December 25th, Christmas Day, 2012, Jocelyn celebrates her sixth birthday. Her father threw her a party, having his hostages decorate the living room. He deliberately left Michelle, though, three months pregnant in her bedroom. After the party gets started, he brings Michelle down, but literally instructs her not to have a good time. Says, you know, don't enjoy the festivities. After the party finished, Carlo uh, or Castro sent Amanda, Jocelyn, and Gina back to the rooms. Then he pointed at the stairs to the basement, ordered Michelle to start heading down. When she makes it to the entrance, he suddenly pushes her as hard as he can, and she lands on her stomach on the side of a bookcase. Then he storms down the stairs, shouting he's going to fix her once and for all, kicks her in the stomach over and over, heads upstairs, turns on some salsa music, right, make it festive, then goes back down to the basement, drags Michelle up the stairs, beats her some more. Four days later, she starts to bleed. Then he brings her into the bathroom where she expels the fetus into the toilet. She picks up her dead baby, apologizes to it, Castro then slaps her in the face, forces her to let go of the fetus, puts the fetus in a garbage bag and throws it in the fucking backyard trash can. He's a demon. He's he's an actual demon. Maybe he uh, was possessed by Barry the demon or maybe the spirit of Billy Shakes. All the world's a stage. All the men and women merely players. But even I, Billy Shakes, serial-killing specter, find Ariel Castro to be uh, distasteful. Satan himself, not a fan. You just, well, we think he takes it too far, doesn't he? Even Billy Shakes, disgusted by Ariel Castro. February 2013, Castro once again looking for work. Former bus driver signs up for Facebook on the 28th, starts uh, searching for more musical contacts through the platform so he can gig. Also regularly updates his status, sounding cheerful and optimistic. March 9th, he greets his Facebook friends, posting good day, everyone, and blessings. How sweet. Mid-March, he forces Michelle outside in the backyard, gives her a large shovel and some gloves, tells her he wants to start a garden. They spend the day digging next to each other. Suddenly, Michelle realizes what they're doing, digging a grave, probably for her. After three hours of heavy digging, Castro announces they're finished for the day and will carry on tomorrow. But then he never asks her to finish digging the hole. Maybe, maybe he changed his mind. April 2nd, 2013, maybe he just wanted to fuck with her. April 2nd, 2013 marked the ninth anniversary of Gina's disappearance. Ariel shows her uh, uh shows up, excuse me, to her vigil, plays music with the salsa band. Just getting off on all the tears and pain that he's caused. April twenty first, Ariel celebrates the tenth anniversary of Amanda's abduction. Uh, just after 4 p.m., Monday, May 6th, Ariel Castro pokes his head into Michelle and Gina's bedroom, announces he's going to his mom's house to collect uh, dinner. Well, that's nice. That's uh, what's said in the source, to collect dinner. Maybe have dinner? I don't know how you fucking collect dinner. Uh, just get, grab some, bring it back? I don't know. Soon afterward, little Jocelyn starts running up and down the stairs yelling, Daddy's gone to Grandma's house! Daddy's gone to Grandma's house! Uh, she then r- runs up to her, to her mom's room saying, Daddy told me to come up here and stay. Amanda's initial reaction was to lie still, not do anything. Uh, uh, Maybe it's another one of his traps. See if she's going to try to escape. Eventually, she peeks outside, though, and sees that Castro's blue sports convertible has gone. Her bedroom door is not locked, as it usually is. So she opens it, goes downstairs, tries the front door, which is usually locked. To her amazement, now it's unlocked. Taking a big breath, she opens the door, but the three-panel screen door in front of it is chain-locked. Outside, though, she can see a woman sitting on a neighboring lawn which is pretty fucking awesome. Her name, Aurora Marti. Around 5.15, Aurora Marti had dragged her green plastic chair onto her neighbor, Alta Gracia Dejada's stone porch for a chat. Soon another friend, Angel Cordero, had joined them. Aurora, a 76-year-old grandmother among the first wave of Puerto Rican immigrants who settled into the booming steel town after World War II. Suddenly, a frantic scream pierces the evening calm. It comes from the White House across the street, flying a Puerto Rican flag. Aurora looked up to see a woman's hand frantically waving through a narrow gap in the front screen door. Help me, I'm Amanda Barry, the woman screamed. Amanda Barry's dead, Aurora shouted back across the street. Everybody knows that. What a weird interaction. No, the woman shouted. I've been kidnapped in this house for 10 years by Ariel Castro. Aurora had known Castro for more than 25 years, and she liked him, but also knew he had a temper. She and the others now cross the street towards Castro's house. Angel says they uh, shouldn't get involved in Ariel's business. Shut the fuck up, Angel, you weak-minded bitch. Aurora, not a silly little bitch, but instead a boss bitch, insists on helping the woman, telling Alta to stand lookout in the middle of the road, warn them if Castro returns. Aurora and Cordero then come up on the porch, try to wrench the glass storm door open, with Amanda pushing as hard as she can from the inside. Kick it, kick it, Cordero tells her. Storm door is is chained shut, though, and won't budge. Two doors away, a neighbor named Charles Ramsey eating a burger on his porch. Here's this commotion. At first, he thinks someone has been hit by a car, but after seeing Aurora and Cordero rush across the street, he comes over to help the screaming woman. He and Cordero begin kicking the bottom panel of the screen door together until it finally breaks. Holy shit. Just like that, it has happened. Amanda Berry now crawls out into the bright sunlight wearing only a filthy white tank top and blue slacks few moments later, a little girl crawls out behind her in a black wig and pink tights. Let's get out of here, Cordero tells him, because if Ariel comes back, he's going to kill us all. Shut the fuck up, Angel. After picking up the little girl, Amanda Berry runs across the street to Alta Garcia's porch, yells for a phone to call 911. The child is hysterical, screaming, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. At one point, she tries to run back in the house. Angel then hands Amanda her phone. Amanda calls 911, reports she's been kidnapped and missing for 10 years few feet away, Charles Ramsey also calls 911, speaking to another dispatcher on his cell phone. I fucking love this man, by the way. Charles Ramsey, Aurora Marty, couple of heroes. Hey, check this out, Charles said. I just came from McDonald's, right? I'm on my porch eating my food, right? This broad is trying to break out of this fucking house next to me. She's like, this motherfucker's done kidnapped me and my daughter, and we've been in this bitch. She said her name was Linda Barry or some shit. I don't know who the fuck that is. I just moved here, bro. Ha <laughs> <laughs> ha. I love this guy's quote. It gives a lot of extra information that they don't need. He sounds like I do when I try to order stuff. Lindsay makes fun of me so bad when I order food at restaurant. I don't know why I panic every time, even though I know exactly what I want. And I start giving a lot of unnecessary information. I'm like, I'm just tired. I don't know. I'm so, so hungry. They're like, they don't fucking care. Lindsay will talk to me. They're just like, they don't care about your stat, your status. They just want to know what you want to eat. Just give them that info and nothing else. I <laughs> Love Charles. Cleveland police officers Anthony Espada and Michelle Tracy are in their squad car on Lorraine and 25th Street. Code 1 alert comes in at 5.52 p.m. Dispatch tells them she's just received a call from a hysterical woman claiming to be Amanda Berry. They knew it could be her, but they were heavily skeptical. The story had been such an enduring mystery that some crazy people were bound to have heard it and potentially incorporated it into their delusions. Officer Tracy then turns on the overhead siren, flashing lights, hits the accelerator, races towards 227 uh, Seymour, 2207 Seymour Avenue. When he arrives, he sprints straight to the house. He runs right by a crying Amanda Barry. He quickly knocks on the broken door. When after two seconds, no one answers the broken door, he sprints back into his squad car. He passes right by Amanda to get back there and then drives back to the station. False alarm. I I, I follow protocol. I knocked, I knocked on the door. No one answered. So, you know, just somebody yanking our chain. What can you do? Like we always say here, all you can do is knock, really. Literally, the only thing you can do is just knock. And if no one answers, there's been no crime. And you just try to forget about it. No, he approaches Amanda and the neighbors. And his first question is simple. Was there anyone else in the house? Yes, Amanda said. Gina de Jesus and Michelle Knight. After Ariel had left uh, for his moms, Michelle and Gina had turned on the radio. They heard Jocelyn run into Amanda's room, yelling something about daddy. Then the sound of footsteps going downstairs. Michelle assumed that Castro had summoned Jocelyn and Amanda to hang out as a family, had no idea what's really going on, what's about to happen. Michelle now hears pounding. She tells Gina to turn down the radio and waits, terrified, thinking that somebody was going to break in, somebody bad. Then there's a loud, explosive noise downstairs as officers Tracy and Nan bust in. Gina and Michelle, they don't know who's coming in. They're scared. The officers don't know where the women are. Although it's bright and sunny outside, the inside of the house is pitch dark All these windows boarded up. Officers Tracy and Anna go down to the basement. Officers Espada and Johnson go up to the second floor. Espada yells, Cleveland police, Cleveland police, as he climbs the stairs. No answer. Gina and Michelle huddled behind a dresser. So many years of manipulation, brainwashing, beatings. They don't trust anybody. They don't trust the police. Uh, Somebody saying that they're the police. Excuse me, rather. But then they hear a police walkie-talkie, and seconds later, the door opens. Johnson and Espada come into the room, guns drawn, and Michelle jumps into Espada's arms. Meanwhile, 5.55, the APB goes out to pick up Castro immediately. Several minutes later, officers Brill and Hageman spot his distinctive blue Mazda Miata a few blocks away. They follow for a couple minutes, watch as it pulls into a McDonald's parking lot, and it's fucking go time. Officers walk over to the car, ask Ariel Castro, who is driving, for his ID. When they realize his younger brother, O'Neill is in the passenger seat, they draw their guns. The Castro brothers are then separated, read their rights, and handcuffed, taken to police headquarters. When they arrive, Ariel Castro looks unfazed, doesn't say a word, but his visibly nervous younger brother is talkative. Is there something going on? O'Neill tells officers, you have to talk to Pedro about it. He's at our mom's house on hide." But their brother, Pedro, not going to be much help. Apparently, Pedro had passed out drunk at their mom's house after lunch. What a fucking family. It's nothing but champions. A few minutes later, officers arrest him, too. All three brothers then fingerprinted, dressed in orange jail scrubs, taken to the Cleveland City Jail. Back at the house, Michelle Knight refusing to let go of the police officer, keeps repeating, you saved us, you saved us. A few minutes later, they try to coax Gina out. None of them recognize the emaciated, cropped-haired girl who emerges from the shadows. She looks nothing like her missing posters. Both are taken out to the ambulance, waiting on the street, where they begin to tell the police their stories, how Ariel Castro had lured them into his house so long ago. They had to explain all of Jocelyn's life story how she'd been conceived from rape, born in a basement, never seen a doctor, dentist or any other medical professional. And they talked about Michelle's multiple miscarriages. After barely scratching the surface to the extent of their abuse, all four taken to Metro Health Hospital. Soon another person will arrive on the scene, FBI agent special or FBI special agent Andrew Burke of the Violent Crimes Task Force. He'll oversee the investigation, soon to become one of the biggest Cleveland has ever seen. Their aim seems deceptively simple, investigating how Ariel Castro could have possibly snatched three women women off the street and kept them hidden for a decade. But not so simple. The sheer amount of time meant that they had a decade of phone records, receipts, DNA evidence, testimony to sort through before they could put together their case. A massive endeavor. Uh, And he would oversee the process of reuniting Michelle, Amanda, Gina, and Jocelyn with their families and also protecting them from the media onslaught. At the hospital, the four victims were examined by the emergency physician on duty. Michelle weighed only 84 pounds. Uh, she was the worst off of all of them. She had nerve damage in both arms from beatings and had life-threatening bacterial uh, had a life-threatening bacterial infection from eating 11 years of often rotten food. While they were being examined and photographed, a nurse gave Michelle a Nutribar. She ate it raven- ravenously. Then she uh, nervously asked for another one, and the nurse told her she could have as many as she wanted. She immediately hugged the nurse, repeatedly saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, over and over again, so grateful for such a small item. Her first proper meal that night would be steak and shake, cheeseburger, fries, and a cheesecake blizzard from Dairy Queen, which she later described as going to heaven. Amanda had Jocelyn, so she seemed a little more grounded, according to Officer Barbara Johnson, who stayed with the women all night. Amanda was hard at work, making it seem like everything was okay to her daughter. Gina, on the other hand, seemed confused by the whole thing, especially as people kept coming up to her, giving her a big hug and saying, we've been praying for you. Uh, The authorities then sadly really fucked up one more time with these girls. For some reason, they thought it would be a good idea to fly Jim Bob Duggar (laughs) into to talk to the girls about, you know, hope for the future and how God had wonderful things in store for them. Unfortunately, he would not talk about hope, but would instead mostly focus on the conditions of their bicycles. Hey, diddly do, girls. Oh, wee! I just got filled in about what's been going on and gosh darn it to heck. I'd love to tell you everything's gonna be A-OK going forward, but I'm very ho-diddly worried about the condition of your boat diddly bicycles. I got some bad news and some good news. Here's the bad news. Sounds like Ariel rode your diddly bicycles off a cliff then kick your box back up the cliff, then shot your box out of a cannon back to the bottom of said cliff, then stood up on top of the cliff for a few hours throwing rocks down on your box, then jumped off the cliff himself and broke his fall by landing on your box, then set your box on fire. After removing the chains, using those to whip your box for another few hours, then finally drag your box over to the river, chain some rocks to them, threw them in, let them sink to the bottom. The good news is you can choose a lonely life of celibacy and dedicate your life to the Lord. Uh, Jesus loves any and all uh While I will never be able to uh, love you, and I would never allow you uh, to uh, marry any of my righteous sons or have them love you, uh, Jesus still will. Uh, thankfully, before he could say anything else, Toots Martinez and some of his fellow Cleveland Steamer motorcycle club members grabbed Jim Bob, took him out behind the hospital, uh, hit him with baseball bats for about ten minutes. Broke both his arms, broke both his legs, most of his ribs. Also, as a symbolic gesture, shoved a Bicorn up his hey diddly-do ass. <laughs> that Jim Bob stuff was real confusing. Sorry you didn't listen to uh, last week's episode. Uh, ba- back to this week's people. Back to this now. Speaking of Gina, around 7 o'clock, Nancy and Felix de Jesus uh, hear a rumor that Gina has been found alive in Ariel Castro's house. Nancy falls to the ground shouting, Matalo. Uh, which i guess translates to kill him soon an fbi agent would show nancy a picture of the rescued girl and nancy would identify her as gina fbi brought gina's parents elder brother ricardo uh, over to the metro health medical center for an intensely emotional reunion i cannot imagine when they walked into the conference room saw gina for the first time in nine years they rushed into each other's arms sobbing kissing crying amanda also reunited with her sister beth serrano at the hospital. Sadly, no one came to see the worst sufferer of the most abuse, uh, Michelle Knight. Instead, a victim's advocate was summoned to the hospital to help her. Meanwhile, the city of Cleveland is in a frenzy. As the news that Amanda Berry and Gina de Jesus had been found spread around Cleveland like wildfire, hundreds of people gathered on the streets of the west side to celebrate, with uh, passing drivers honking horns in support. By eight, a team, of Navy, a team of TV, I don't even know what I just said, news crews, had arrived on seymour avenue TV reporter john kossich would interview amanda's rescuer charles ramsey now being hailed as a hero a couple lines in that interview will become iconic like when kossich asked about his neighbor ariel castro and <laughs> ramsey replied you got some pretty big testicles to pull this off bro because we see this dude every day i mean every day i barbecue with this dude we eat ribs and whatnot listen to salsa music Kostich asked about the girl's reactions to being outside the house in the sunlight. (laughs) Ramsey replied, bro, I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms. Something is wrong here. Dead giveaway, dead giveaway. Within minutes, that interview goes viral. And then a remix of the interview goes more viral. And I have to play it for you. It's, you know, this is obviously such a fucking tragic nightmare of an episode But at least uh, some joy, I guess, came out from Charles Ramsey. This is just ridiculous, this little remix.
1: I'm talking with Charles Ramsey. He's a neighbor. Uh, Walk me through again what happened this afternoon. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms. Dad giveaway. Dad giveaway. My neighbor (laughs) got big testicles because we see this dude every day. We eat ribs with this dude. But we didn't have a glue that that girl was in that house. She said, Please help me get out. They give, 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 give away, they 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 give away. My neighbor got big testicles because we see this <laughs> every, day. every day. We eat ribs with this dude. But we didn't have a glue that that uh. girl was in that house. She said, please help me get out. So I'm open the door. We can't get in that way. The body can't fit through the door. Only your hand. So we k- k- kick the bottom. And she comes out and she says, get some old girls up in that house. Call 911. And they called him at McDonald's. I knew something was wrong when a little pretty white girl ran into a black man's arms. They gave it away They
0: gave it away. <laughs> Ah, he has like this, like this, the best like mullet and stuff too. It's ah, oh, it's so great, so great. Ah, hail Charles, Charles Ramsey. Woo! Uh, at eleven on Monday night, this is the longest day ever. Amanda called her father John Barry. That song is so catchy. I'll, as I'm trying to get back into the notes, all I can hear in my head is dead giveaway, dead giveaway, <laughs> dun dun every day. I eat ribs with this dude. Oh, it's, it's so fucking insanely catchy. I why, I would actually love to hear why why is it's a bummer to me that Charles Ramsey didn't get in the recording booth and just throw out a bunch of fucking random freestyle verses and just have it mixed into other songs. There's something very soothing about his voice. Um okay. So, 11 on Monday night, Amanda calls her dad John Barry and grandmother Fern Gentry in Tennessee tells them she's safe. She'd reunite with her Cleveland family, but uh or had reunited already but her Tennessee family had no idea. Her dad, terminally ill with pulmonary disease. Uh, Now living in Naples, Florida, Barbara Knight, watching the evening news when she first learns Michelle is alive, spends the rest of the evening trying to call her daughter at the hospital, but Michelle refuses to take her calls. Michelle has not forgotten about how her mom never protected her growing up. And for the last uh, bit of this day, let's head to the Cleveland City Jail. All three Castro brothers put on suicide watch. At one point, Ariel Ariel is escorted past O'Neill's cell. O'Neill said, uh, or O'Neal, he said, you're never going to see me again. I love you, bro. Early in the morning of Tuesday, by the way, his brothers would be interviewed uh, a little ways after this and uh, fucking hate him. Despise this guy. This, Oh, I love you, bro. They were like, uh, I hope that he is treated as bad as bad in jail as he treated those girls. Uh, he's a monster. We consider him dead to our family. Now, uh, early in the morning of Tuesday, May 7th, Amanda and Gina discharged, taken to a hotel at a secret location in Cleveland. They'll have 24 hour security. Michelle, still in need of medical attention, remains at the hospital. And the media has now begun to assemble stories from neighbors. Neighbors who said that they had seen naked women in Castro's backyard. Uh, Women pounding on the windows. Heard suspicious screams coming from the basement and other parts of the house. They talked about calling the police and about how no one ever bothered to investigate. At nine, the Cleveland Department of Public Safety holds a press conference to update the media. Tries to head off mounting criticism. Now, this morning, we're happy to announce Mayor Frank Jackson told hundreds of reporters gathered at City Hall that Amanda Berry, Gina de Jesus, and Michelle Knight have been found and are alive. We're happy they have been returned to us, but their absence has plagued their families, our community and Cleveland police for years. Mayor Jackson said that although three suspects were in custody, there were still many unanswered questions as to why and how it had happened. Then Special Agent Steve Anthony, in charge of the FBI's Cleveland office, took the microphone and declared the nightmare is over. These three young ladies have provided us with the ultimate definition of survival and perseverance. The healing can now begin. Special Agent Anthony said the FBI and Cleveland police had relentlessly pursued every tip that had come in over the years. He said in the families of these three young ladies never gave up hope and neither did law enforcement. Every tip. Relentlessly. Yeah. There was a barrage of questions. A cable news reporter asked why Cleveland police hadn't investigated Castro, especially after the 2004 school bus incident, the one where he would left that boy in the bus, maybe kidnapped him. Law enforcement explained that Castro had been interviewed extensively. I don't know about that. Wasn't a suspect in any other complaint. Later that day, Cleveland City Hall released a statement denying allegations of sightings of suspicious behavior at Ariel Castro's house, supposedly reported to the police. It stated media reports of multiple calls to the Cleveland police reporting suspicious activity and the mistreatment of women at 2207 Seymour are false. So that sucks that they just fucking lied. Um, Trying to save face with some, you know, PR. Few hours later, Ariel Castro transported from Cleveland City Jail to police headquarters for the first of two interviews he would give. Deputy Sheriff David Jacobs of the Cuyahoga County Sheriff's Office was in charge of his interrogation and mapped out a careful approach. Because of the extent of the crimes, the media scrutiny, uh, this was, you know, very high pressure. After reading Castro, his Miranda rights carefully, Jacobs began questioning him about each of the women in the uh, order he had taken them and was surprised by how much Castro wanted to talk. Even referred to himself several times as a sexual predator, used the word abduct, admitted he'd done it all purely to satisfy his sexual needs. Also made sure to say he had acted alone, that his brothers didn't have anything to do with it. Uh, But, Ariel being Ariel, did tell a shitload of lies as well. Told Jacobs that he and Michelle Knight had consensual sex from her 2002 abduction until, you know, a week before his arrest. He claimed she'd only uh, told him of one pregnancy when the two of them had devised a plan for her to go on a tea diet for several days, as well as knee bends and jumping jacks so she'd miscarry. At one point in the interrogation, Castro said he realized he was in big trouble. He said, I know I'm going away for a long time. During the next session, he told Jacobs that all that he wanted all his money and property to be divided amongst his victims whom he identified through photographs and he expressed surprise that he had not been caught earlier he was also questioned about his 2004 confession letter which had been found by detectives the previous night near the kitchen counter sink he admitted writing the letter saying he had done so in the event that if something happened to him people could see that he had been a victim as well <laughs> fuck this guy i think he lost the right to claim being a victim the first time he beat the shit out of nilda uh, back at Seymour Avenue, detectives were now picking apart the house to see what they can find, thinking that there was a strong possibility they might find bodies hidden somewhere. They wouldn't find those, but they found so much other shit. Uh, when Special Agent Andrew Burke arrived at midday, more than 300 pieces of, pieces of evidence, including yards of rusty chains, ropes, bondage material, uh, had all been removed in plastic bags for forensic testing. Uh, they looked at how Castro had altered the architecture of the house to completely hide the existence of certain rooms how he had installed restraints and locks, and they saw the sad bedrooms where the women in Jocelyn had spent the last decade. Also that day, someone would finally come to see Michelle, her brother, Freddie Knight. Uh, Barbara will fly to Cleveland, but will complain to reporters how she hadn't seen her daughter. Interviews both by the media and police will continue for days. Wednesday, May 8th, two days after escaping, Amanda Berry returns home to her sister's house on West 111th Street. Three hours later, Gina Jesus comes home too. As she passed through a crowd of reporters, she gave a thumbs up and her father pumped the air with a fist and hugged a police officer. Gina wouldn't go to her bedroom, though. It reminded her too much of the room she'd been imprisoned in. Instead, she'll stay on an inflatable mattress in the living room with her family. Barbara Knight also finally allowed to see her daughter, but tempers reportedly flared and Michelle was asked to leave. Or Michelle asked, excuse me, Barbara to leave. That afternoon, Ariel Castro was charged with four counts of kidnapping and three counts of rape. He'll be charged with so much more soon. Uh, he's arraigned the next day in Cleveland Municipal Court with a bond of $2 million on each of the charges, totaling 8000000 million. He'd be let out of the court in shackles, showing no reaction and placed on suicide watch at the Cuyahoga County Jail. There, for some reason, he would take off all his clothes and pace around naked, as one does when they need to think. May 10th, confirmed that Ariel Castro had fathered Jocelyn. Meanwhile, the families had now begun to lawyer up with Amanda and Gina's families hiring the Cleveland-based Jones Day Law Firm, uh, there wasn't only the matter of Castro's trial. Lawyers would have to coordinate everything from book and movie deals already pouring in to media appearances and more. That afternoon, Michelle, released from the Metro Health Medical Center, quietly moves into a hospice facility just because there was nowhere, nowhere else for her to go, and she didn't want to see her mom. Indeed, her mom had actually hired an attorney to get her rights to see her daughter, as she was angry at not having been informed that Michelle had left the hospital. Metro Health Medical Center pointed out that Michelle Knight was an adult capable of making her own decisions and fuck you for not doing more when she was a kid. Uh, They were just protecting her rights. May 14th, Castro would meet with his new attorneys, Craig Weintraub and Jay Shallott, or I don't know how to say his last name. Uh, The lawyers have been contacted by Castro's uncle Sacy two days after his arrest. And you know what? Fuck uncle Sacy. Fuck anyone and everyone who tried to help this clown. They met in Cuyahoga County jail where Castro's behavior had grown more bizarre. He now spent most of his time staring at the empty bunk overhead, walking around naked, drinking Kool-Aid while staring at himself in the mirror. When he wasn't sleeping or having one of his three regular meals, Castro liked to snack using his commissary money to purchase peanut butter crackers and Snickers bars. That's fun that he gets to have nice candy. He constantly complained to his guards that his cell was too cold, but still didn't put on clothes. During his three-hour meeting with the attorneys, Castro insisted on still being naked, so he just takes a three-hour naked meeting with his attorneys and orders them to turn off the air conditioning. He had already confessed to detectives without a lawyer present. The main issue for the defense was whether Castro would face a death penalty uh, as fetus murder, what he'd done to Michelle five times, classified as an aggravated homicide under Ohio law. The next morning, the two attorneys told a TV reporter that their client would plead not guilty to all the charges if a grand jury indicted him. Weintraub said Ariel Castro had been demonized by the world's press before anyone knew the whole story. And you know what? Fuck Weintraub. Could have said no to this case. The initial portrayal by the media has been one of a monster, said Weintraub. And that's not the impression I got when I talked to him for three hours. <laughs> when you talked to that fucking naked maniac for three hours. Soon after, the Castro family met and discussed how to proceed now that they were publicly related to one of the worst men in Cleveland. At the meeting, it was decided that Ariel Castro Jr., now using his middle name of Anthony, would be the Castro family spokesman. From now on, all media requests would go through him, although his uncle Sacy Castro would also give the occasional interview. At the beginning of June, Ariel Castro, taken off a suicide watch, moved to another part of the jail where he's provided with the television. So that sucks. June 7th, the Cuyahoga County Grand Jury returns an unprecedented 329-count indictment against Ariel Castro. Shockingly, this only covered the period from August 2002 to February 2007. Prosecutor Tim McGinty promised more to come. The 142-page indictment accused Ariel Castro of two counts of aggravated murder for causing the unlawful termination of pregnancy. Of a pregnancy, He also indicted him on uh, 139 counts of rape, 177 counts of kidnapping, seven counts of gross sexual imposition, three counts of felonious assault, and a single count of possessing criminal tools. Next day, Castro's attorneys announced he will plead not guilty to each and every charge. But what was unclear was whether or not Castro would face the death penalty. Castro's attorney, Jay Shallett, said the death penalty was inappropriate for Castro's case, noting there was no physical evidence or medical records relating to the miscarriages. p.m. Wednesday, June 2nd, a handcuffed and shackled Ariel Castro led to the Cuyahoga Common Pleas Court for his arraignment. It had been moved to Judge Dina Calabresi's uh, 22nd floor courtroom to accommodate all the media. Castro, dressed in a bright orange jumpsuit, appeared to have a smirk on his face, that smug fuck, pleaded not guilty to every charge, and then court was dismissed. Afterwards, Ariel Castro wrote several Father's Day letters to his kids from his jail cell. Ah, that's awesome. They were never delivered. I just can't believe what I did he wrote in one to put me in the situation that I'm in now. Huh, we I think we all know he did. June 22, 2013, Judge Michael Russo would order Ariel Castro to undergo a psychiatric competency evaluation to see if he is fit to stand trial. He'd be examined in Cuyahoga County Court. Uh, excuse me, he'd be examined in the Cuyahoga County Court Psychiatrist Clinic by Dr. Philip Resnick and Dr. Jason Beeman. Told him about his early childhood in Puerto Rico, how he'd been sexually abused by an older boy when he was five. Claimed that after moving to America, his mom physically abused him daily. When Dr. Resnick asked him how he felt about that, Castro said he prayed his mom would die. Then Dr. Resnick asked him about his educational history. Castro said he was a satisfactory student, but teased by other boys, couldn't remember why. Admitted to being suspended in junior high for touching a girl's breast. Said his first relationship was in seventh grade, lasted five months. When asked about his psychiatric history, Castro said he'd experienced his first mental health problem around 1980, when he began getting headaches and feeling disoriented and confused. said that these periods, uh, during these periods, he'd make bad decisions. Also said he didn't want the death penalty. Uh, these, these doctors would declare him fit to stand trial. His competency would be affirmed by the court July 3rd, 2013, at the same hearing. He asked if Jocelyn could visit him in jail. Fucking balls on this guy. Uh, Judge Michael Russo was like, uh, how about you go fuck yourself instead? Didn't allow it. Thursday, July 11th. Day after Ariel Castro's 53rd birthday, the Capitol Review Committee (CRC) met in the Cuyahoga County Prosecutor's Office to discuss whether or not to seek the death penalty. Before the meeting, Castro's lawyers had presented their mitigating factors. According to them, there was no medical evidence to corroborate Michelle's claims that Castro had forced her to miscarry. They uh, warned that since the testimony would be hard to verify if the state did win, they had a long appeals process ahead of them. The defense also argued that Castro would likely spend the rest of his life on death row if convicted given the average time on death row at the time, 16.6 years, and that that would cost the state of Ohio millions of dollars. Furthermore, they said Castro's execution was bound to cause harm to Jocelyn. How dare they even bring her name up into this shit? Next morning, the Cuyahoga County grand jury hands down a superseding 977 count indictment covering the entire period the three women were held. This new uh, seventy six page indictment included 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 counts of rape, seven counts of gross sexual imposition, six counts of felonious assault, three counts of child endangerment, and a single count of possessing criminal tools. Also include the two counts of aggravated, aggravated murder from the original indictment. July 26, 2013, McGinty would offer a plea deal under the deal, which would put him in prison for life without parole, plus a minimum of a thousand years Castro would agree to plead guilty to 937 counts out of the 977. These included the two charges of aggravated murder. Uh, sorry, I'm thinking of a different part of the story. i will laughing at this. Relating to terminating Michelle Knight's pregnancies and Castro took the deal. At the hearing, he agreed that he would never again see the light of day, but said that there were some things he wanted to put on record, that he'd been a victim of child abuse and everything had stemmed from that. But the judge cut him off, saying he could talk about his problems at sentencing. I love it. Hey, hey, Ariel. Hey, hey bud. Uh, hey, hey, bud, how about you take everything you just said and everything you were about to say and you file it under who gives a fuck, everyone hates you. Under the teams of the deal, Ariel Castro would have to forfeit the property on Seymour Avenue. His personal photos and clothing would be given to his children, but C's cash would go towards demolishing 2207 Seymour Avenue along with the two houses beside it. Afterwards, Tim McGinty told the press that justice had been done. He said, he's never coming out except nailed in a box or in an ash can. He's not stepping out. Sentencing would be on August 1st. Uh, August 1st, the courtroom is overflowing with spectators. Exact scale model of 2207 Seymour, constructed by the FBI's Quantico Lab, have been placed at the front of the courtroom. And the big question on everyone's lips was whether any of the victims would address the court. For the most part, all three women have been keeping to themselves, spending time with their families, making plans to go back to school, obtain GEDs, and begin college. Good for them. There would not be a trial, but Tim McGinty still planned to present evidence and call witnesses. That way there would be a record of Ariel Castro's evil deeds if he ever tried to appeal. The witnesses described how Castro had lured the young women back to the house, the extent of the abuse, and the massive amount of evidence that proved he was guilty. And FBI agents detailed the magnitude of the psychological, physical, and financial case, or excuse me, care, that the women in Jocelyn would need going forward. Castro's 2004 letter, in which he admitted to being a sexual predator, was read aloud. And an expert on PTSD testified to how the women's brains had been rewired, how the complete and total terror of their experiences had left a lasting mark that may never fully be undone. Uh, families of the victims, Gina's cousin, Amanda's sisters, would also make victim impact statements. Michelle Knight, however, would be the last to speak. She told the court about how she'd missed her son, Joey, cried herself to sleep uh, you know, every single night for over 10 years thinking about him. Said she knew that nobody cared about her, that holidays passed without anyone wishing she was home for them. Then she addressed Ariel. Ariel Castro, she began, as he stared at her without a hint of emotion. You took 11 years of my life away, and I have got it back. I spent 11 years in hell, and now your hell is just beginning. I will overcome all that has happened, but you will face hell for eternity. From this moment on, I will not let you define me or affect who I am. I will live on. You will die a little every day. Fuck yes. Hail Nimrod. She is so strong in all the evidence boiled down to one thing. The girls have been given life sentences by Castro. So he should have one now himself. It would only be fitting 1238 PM. Judge Michael Russo asked Ariel Castro if he wished to speak before being sentenced. And for the next 17 minutes, everyone present regretted the judge giving him the floor. That pathetic waste of oxygen and space delivered a rambling, self-pitying, often defiant speech from the defense table as his two attorneys looked on helplessly, as they looked, frankly, embarrassed to be sitting next to him. First of all, Castro began, I'm a very emotional person, okay? So I'm going to try and get it out. No one fucking cares, dude. He began by telling the judge how he had been a victim of sexual molestation as a child leading to his lifelong obsession with pornography and sexual problems. People are trying to paint me as a monster, he told the court, and I'm not a monster. I'm sick. Castro maintained he'd always lived a normal life, holding on a steady job with a wife and four kids. And I, (laughs) ah, this is a quote. He says, he says, and I still practice the art of touching myself (laughs) and viewing pornography. The art of touching myself. He's talking about jerking off, right? I didn't realize there was a real art to it. Like, have I been doing it wrong all these years? I've only ever really leaned on two basic, pretty, you know, you know, tech, you know, base techniques, Uh, a dry rub and a wet rub. The dry rub. It's all about the grip. Right, Firm enough so you can still pull the loose skin of the shaft up and over the head a bit so you're not jamming the side of your thumb and fingers against the base of the head and bruising it, but also loose enough so you're not crushing and bruising anything. Uh, for a wet rub, the key is a good lotion that isn't so thick it feels like your dick stuck in some mud, but also not so thin that the lotion doesn't provide a layer of bruise and friction burn protection as you try and glide back and forth with a looser grip than you would use in a dry rub. Are there more options in this, like a lot more artistic ways of jerking off? Am I supposed to put a, a little beret on my dick uh, and glue a tiny little paintbrush and easel on a small coat or vest I've wrapped around the shaft? Make masturbation look like I'm assaulting a strange little 19th century French painter or something. I'll stop. None of this matters for me anyway, uh, you know, in light of my recent accidents. You know, falling out of bed with boners has been pretty tragic. I actually fell again the other day. I'm not, I'll talk about it later. I don't want to be too distracting right now. Castro added, I believe I'm addicted to porn to the point that it doesn't really that it really makes me impulsive. And I just don't realize what I'm doing is wrong. I'm not trying to make excuses here because I know that I'll be put away forever. Yeah, but you are making excuses because you want people to pity you instead of despise you. He continued referring to the time after his divorce from Nilda saying, I continue to pr- <laughs> I continue to practice the art of masturbation. Oh, the art and pornography. And it got so bad that I used to do it two or three hours a day, nonstop. And when I was finished, I would just collapse right there. Uh, sounds like, sounds less like art and more like uh, some kind of masturbation marathon running. Doesn't sound very fun, honestly. Sounds exhausting. Uh, he then segued into how he had picked up the first victim, saying it was completely unplanned. When I got up that day, he told the court, I did not say, oh, I'm going to try and find some women because I it just wasn't my character. But I know it's wrong. And I'm not trying to make excuses here as he makes more excuses. Suddenly he became emotional, complaining that everybody said he was violent when the opposite was true. <laughs> he told the judge, I... I drove a school bus. I'm a musician. I have a family. I do have value for human life. Everyone knows it's literally impossible for a bus-driving musician with a family to be abusive. It can't be done. Castro claimed that Jocelyn had always lived a normal life and he would take her out in the public to experience life outside 2207 Seymour. Then, paradoxically, Castro explained that he'd been driven by sex when he abducted Gina de Jesus. And he appeared to blame Amanda for getting into his car without even knowing who he was. He said, I'm trying to make a point that I'm not a violent predator. You are trying to make me look like a monster. I'm not a monster. I'm a normal person. I'm just sick. I have an addiction just like an alcoholic has an addiction. Alcoholics cannot control their addiction. That's why I can't control my addiction, your honor. Like, what does he expect to happen here? The honor, you know what? You're right. I was hard on you. We're going to give you parole. We're going to let you off with parole. <laughs> your honor. Uh, Ariel Castro is just like an alcoholic. Some people drink too often and too much and other people kidnap and rape and imprison girls and women too much. And all of those people are the same. Neither group, better or worse than the other. He then told the judge that most of the sex had been consensual. Oh my God. And that there had been a lot of harmony. (laughs) 2207 Seymour. He told Judge Russo, practically all of it was consensual. These allegations about being forceful on them are totally wrong. Because there were times they would even ask me for sex. Many times. Get the fuck out of here. And I learned that these girls, I learned that these girls are not virgins. From their testimony to me. And they had multiple partners before me. All true. That's what he says. It's true, your honor. By the time I found their bikes, they'd already been jumped off a shit ton of ramps. They'd been ridden down alleys, tossed aside in front of different schools, convenience stores, thrown off bridges. These bikes were far from shiny and new. When I got a hold of them. So who gives a shit? How hard I wrote him, your honor. Am I right? Uh, How satisfying would an ending to the story be if mid-speech the judge just like pulled out a Glock G17 or something and just blew both his fucking kneecaps out? Shut the fuck up! Take him away. No hospital. Just throw him in the cell as is. Finally, cradling his head in his hands, victim Ariel Castro apologized to his three victims, saying he was truly sorry for what had happened, and then he blamed the FBI. He blamed them for incompetence, saying that, you know, if they had done a better investigation, (laughs) ha, He might've been caught a long time ago. He declared, I feel that the FBI let these girls down. (laughs) My God. (laughs) Like as if the public, you know, uh, sentiment in the room was going to change. Like, you know what? He's on our side. It's the FBI. That's the problem. He declared, but they failed to question me. I'm her father. If they would have questioned me, it's possible. It It would have ended right there. He then turned to the victim's families and said he was truly sorry again. And then it was over. After thanking Michelle Knight for her remarkable restraint during that, Judge Russo asked Castro how he could possibly say he was not a violent person after admitting to hundreds of sexually violent offenses. And although he might find the term sexual predator unpleasant, it fit. Castro argued back, it's confusing. It makes it sound like I forced myself onto them. It never happened, you know, physically. By virtue of your plea, that is what you did, said the judge. You raped someone. That's what it means. How hard did he have to work to not add stuff like, you dumb motherfucker? Judge Russo told the defendant that this was by far the worst case he'd that had ever come before him was unparalleled in its scope of kidnapping, torture, and deprivation. He said, all this was organized. You used deception. You used change and other means to hold captive three young women and ultimately a young child. The judge noted that although Castro claimed to suffer from sexual addiction when he abducted Michelle Knight, he had a steady girlfriend who he neither harmed nor abused. You just made a calculated decision to do wrong, said Judge Russo. And if anything, to me, you exhibit antisocial personality disorder. I'm not a psychological expert. I certainly don't have the credentials of those who spoke here today. But you have extreme narcissism, and it seems rather persuasive. He said that this trial seemed to offer not only justice for his victims, but also for Nilda. They brought charges against Castro when she couldn't. Then the judge turned sentencing, Ariel Castro, uh, to, for the 937 counts, beginning with the two or he turned to the sentencing. For all those accounts, beginning with the uh, murder uh, relating to Michelle Knight's forced miscarriages. May I say something, asked the defendant. No, said Judge Russo, looking impatient, before he then added, well, what do you want to say? You pled guilty to it. And Casto replied, 'I I know that, but there was never any evidence in that. But I don't want to put these women through anymore. So that's why I pled guilty to it. But there was never any incident of the murder of a fetus. That never happened. Mr. Castro, said the judge, you talked to your attorneys. You made a decision to plead to count one as indicted. Is that correct? Yes, I understand that, replied Castro. I just want to tell the record. I never killed anyone. I'm not a murderer. Then Judge Russo read out each and every one of the 937 charges against him, sentencing him to serve the maximum time for each one, totaling life without parole, plus a thousand years, also fined $100,000 and had to forfeit everything he owned. He told the defendant that the court imposed the maximum because these are the worst form of the offenses there. Although Mr. Castro does not have a prior criminal conviction, the breadth and scope of these crimes and the merciless manner in which they were inflicted requires that a maximum sentence of each of those counts be imposed. A person can only die in prison once. Few minutes later in a holding cell, Ariel Castro broke down in tears as he signed over the deed to 2207 Seymour Avenue to the Cleveland Land Bank, which would soon demolish it. He sobbed to prosecutors. I don't know why you have to tear my house down. I have so many, this is a quote. I have so many happy memories there with Gina, Amanda, and Michelle. Did this dumb, sick fuck not actually understand what a monster he was? Man, the power of narcissism. Uh, then he was put in a jail van and delivered to Lorraine Correctional Institution in Grafton, Ohio and placed on suicide watch, but then taken off suicide watch Monday, August 5th. Uh, that day, he's transferred 137 135 miles south to the Correctional Reception Center in Orient, Ohio. There, a psychiatrist diagnosed him with narcissistic personality disorder with antisocial features. So the judge pretty much nailed it. Saturday, August 10th, five days after he arrived in the Correctional Reception Center, Ariel Castro began writing a journal. So that's fun. For the next three weeks, he'd write occasional entries in what he called a day in the life of a prisoner. <laughs> Chronically in his life in captivity. This motherfucker in this journal, had the nerve to complain about warm food and the way he'd been treated by one of his prison guards. He wrote, he mistreats me for no apparent reason. Oh, everyone had so many reasons to mistreat you at this point in your life. Wednesday, August 14th, he wrote that he believed that someone had tampered with his food, given him chest pains and making him throw up. And I hope they did. I hope they stuck their finger up their fucking butthole and then moved that finger around in every fucking meal he ate. That day, the prison medical staff was called to his cell twice after he complained of chest pains, dizziness, and nausea. Over the next few days, he became so paranoid that somebody was poisoning his food, he began flushing it all down the toilet and started, around, started to walk around his cell naked again. As the days passed, Ariel Castro became increasingly anxious about his situation, venting his despair into his diary. I will never see light at the end of the tunnel, he wrote, but that's all right. It's what I chose. I have lots of time on my hands now to think and read, write and exercise. I want to make a bigger effort to try to commit to God. Uh, a bigger? That, so you were making an effort to commit to God when you were beating and raping three prisoners in your home every day for years. Okay, that's interesting. Ironically, considering the basement dungeon he kept the girls in, he also worried about how warm his cell would be in the winter. I'm, <laughs> He wrote, I'm very sensitive to cold draft. It literally drives me to get under the covers. I also get depressed and don't want to do anything but just lay there. I guess we'll just have to wait and see when I get to that bridge. He also fretted about being insulted by the guards. Most of the guards here are okay, he noted, but the younger ones don't take the job seriously or they are rude to me for no apparent reason. Sometimes I drift into a negative thought. I check myself and try harder not to go there. Ah, man, good for him. August 28th, he wrote that he was really getting frustrated. (laughs) I don't. That's so funny to me. I'm really getting frustrated, you guys. I'm fucking tired of being in this prison. I'm tired of having to spend the rest of my life. It's very frustrating. Three days later, he said that he was near his breaking point. September 3rd, 2013, Castro met with corrections officers to decide on a permanent prison. They settled on the Allen Correctional Institute in Lima, Ohio, three hours from Cleveland. For the rest of the afternoon, Ariel Castro remained in the cell, supposed to be checked every 30 minutes by guards, but they missed eight scheduled rounds that day. <laughs> Reminds me of the Epstein Epstein uh, suck. It's almost like we need some prison reform in this country. Maybe rethink about how many people we incarcerate, have a, you know, a better guard to prison ratio maybe, if we had way less non-violent offenders in prisons and were able to keep the focus on less but far more terrible offenders like Castro. 5.29, a prison supervisor brings Castro his evening meal. He refuses to eat it, believing again it's been tampered with. I hope it was. Half an hour later, he returns it untouched to the supervisor. Prison guard checks in around nine. Everything appears to be okay, but once he's gone, Ariel gets to work. He carefully lays out photographs of his kids and family members on a pasteboard near his desk, writes the names of each person under their photograph, lays out several personal items around his cell, leaves his Bible open to the gospel of St. John and writes a passage on the sheet on a sheet of paper. No one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Then he takes off his bed sheet, ties it in knots to form a ligature. After securing several inches of it around the window frame, seven feet off the ground, he winds a a foot long section around his neck and then, Not sure why this part was necessary. Takes off his shorts, lets him fall to his ankles. I don't know, maybe fucking getting one last artistic jerk in. Facing his cell door, he then drops to his knees. The ligature tightens and pulls the last breath out of him shortly. Prison guards will try to revive him, but then paramedics get lost on their way to the fucking jail. How much professional incompetence can one episode have? And then Castro is pronounced dead at 1052 and taken to the morgue. The man who had imprisoned others for 10 years could only handle barely six weeks in prison. One of the only times I've been really bummed that one of these dirtbags dies in prison so quick, just like with Epstein. I wanted him to stay in, suffer for a long time. Too bad some robotics company couldn't have invented some kind of prison rape bot that also prevents prisoners from, you know, killing themselves. (laughs) And that rape bot could just be his cellmate and programmed to brutally rape him seven times a day for the next, I don't know, 11 years or so at least. And also bash him in the head from time to time, break his nose, and dislocate his shoulders. That would have been some fitting punishment. Uh, Now let's get out of this timeline and catch up with Michelle, Amanda, and Gina.
1: Good job, soldier. You've made it
0: back. Barely. So where are the Cleveland kidnapping victims today? Michelle Knight now goes by the name of Lily Rose Lee. Released her second memoir, Life After Darkness, Finding Healing and Happiness After the Cleveland Kidnappings in 2018. Based on Amazon reviews, looks like it's been fucking killing it. Selling tons of copies, very well rated. There's a pic of Michelle on the cover. Uh, she has a bunch of awesome looking tattoos, looks confident, looks strong and happy, and I love it. Her first memoir, Finding Me, was a New York Times bestseller in 2014. She married uh, Miguel Rodriguez, a medical courier, May 6, 2016, Uh, The third anniversary of her freedom, seems like a great dude. She's traveled the globe as a public speaker, even launched her own foundation, Lily's Ray of Hope, supporting women and girls who are victims of domestic violence, human trafficking, and child abuse. She partnered with the specialty coffee maker, 3-19 company, to showcase her artwork and raise money for her foundation, which provides resources for women to restart their lives. Also involved with fostering rescue animals. May 6th of this year, the 10th anniversary of her rescue, she hosted Tragedy to Triumph, an evening with Michelle Knight, a dinner and raffle to raise money for her uh, nonprofit, another group she has started, Unleashed Animal Rescue. Uh, Sadly, she was never reunited with her son, though. After she went missing, he was adopted. After she was freed, she was sent pictures of him, told about him. But the adoptive parents have decided not to let her see him or know his, you know, uh, name and address and such. As of at least uh, as recent as 2021, she still has never seen him, but wishes him happy birthday each year on social media and has said in interviews that she's not bitter about not seeing him. She knows he is happy, he is safe, he is healthy, and that's enough for her because she is a fucking warrior. What about Amanda Berry? Over the years, Berry has turned her attention to spotlighting missing people in Northeast Ohio. She started hosting a daily news segment on Cleveland's Fox 8 because she wanted missing people to know the public was still looking for them. 2015, she co authored a memoir with Gina de Jesus, and she's still raising Jocelyn, who just turned 16, with a large, sweet 16 party, the kind of birthday party Amanda never got to have. Based on her photo in a People magazine back in May, she looks fantastic, healthy, happy, strong as fuck, resilient. Gina de Jesus joined forces with the Northeast Ohio Amber Alert Committee, where she works alongside victims' advocates to provide families with support. 2018, she launched the nonprofit Cleveland Family Center for Missing Children and Adults. Center has been successful in helping numerous families with missing children, working with 58 families as of 2000, uh, or 2022. De Jesus and her family also currently travel around the country, training law enforcement on how to engage with families of the missing. Uh, it's like she brings that one message of hope that, you know what, there's a chance. Newburgh Heights Police Chief John Majoy, who works with De Jesus through the missing center, told Cleveland's Fox 8. She just brings that electric charge with her and nobody else can do that. What a crazy story. So fucking heartbreaking, but also so inspiring. Thinking about like what all these three women went through in Castro's House of Horrors and not one of them let it break them. Not one. All I'm sure have deep scars that will never fully heal, but also doesn't seem like any of them are allowing those scars to define them in the least. They're out there in the world doing so much good. They've refused to sink to his level. They are continuously continuously inspiring other victims of abuse to rise above it, to live a full life, to find love, to trust again. And that is so remarkable. Makes me thankful for all the good I have in my life. To not let any of the bad from the past weigh me down. And my bad, nothing compared to their bad. Fucking nothing. I hope this episode can, you know, uh, make you think about that perspective as well, right? Take away some of the bad. Right? And that way, maybe this wasn't the worst Thanksgiving week episode. Right, Be thankful that you're alive, that you're not trapped in some monster's house. Whatever you have, be thankful for it. Be thankful that if these three women have the strength to overcome what they've overcome, you have the strength to overcome whatever you're dealing with as well. Hail Nimrod. And in, this is a long-ass episode already. Let's get to today's uh, top five takeaways. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Ariel Castro, born in Dewey, Puerto Rico, managed to formulate a plan to kidnap one girl, then another, then another, in order to use them as sexual slaves. He kidnapped Michelle Knight in 2002, when she was 21, Amanda Berry in 2003, a day before she turned 17, and Gina de Jesus in 2004, at the age of only 14. All three women plus Jocelyn, Amanda's daughter by Castro, will be held captive in the house until 2013. Number two, castro's kidnapping career began much earlier than his crimes here he basically kidnapped his own family held them hostage for years forced and his abused wife nilda and their four kids to remain inside the house locked up while he went on various musical gigs throughout cleveland and the surrounding area like with his captives he had so many rules for his family to follow and you know if they didn't follow him beatings were dished out number three May 6, 2013, Amanda was finally able to make firm contact with Castro's neighbors, leading to her escape with Jocelyn and the rescue of Michelle and Gina by authorities. So much of it was by chance that the neighbors were there to help, that Castro had finally forgotten to lock the big heavy front door, that Amanda broke through years of terrifying brainwashing to make her attempt. Number four, Castro was arrested in a McDonald's parking lot shortly after the victims were rescued. He would then receive a massive indictment of 977 criminal counts, 512 counts of kidnapping, 446 of rape, seven of gross sexual imposition, six of felonious assault, three of child endangerment, two of aggregated murder, aggravated murder, and one of possession of criminal tools. Got to make sure he pays for possessing those criminal tools. Can't forget that. Uh, He pleaded not guilty, but when a plea deal came through that took the death penalty off the table, he took it, then killed himself in his cell in September of 2013. Unable to withstand the type of imprisonment he'd so gladly forced on others. And number five, new info. What happened to Charles Ramsey? What happened to Dead Giveaway? I never because we
1: see this we
0: after the edited video of this interview went viral, he made the most of his 15 minutes of fame. Rap superstar Snoop Dogg played his now infamous profanity-filled cell phone call to the police dispatcher on his GGN news network before inviting him into the studio for an interview. You're a real hero, said Snoop. You're somebody that I want to meet. You're a great guy, and you should be commended. There should be more people like you in the world, and hopefully we'll be able to rid the world of fucking peasants that's knocking up girls like that. We love you, Mr. Ramsey. I fucking love Snoop. I love that he referred to Castro as a peasant. (laughs) People don't throw on the word peasants enough. Uh, local restaurant chain also offered him free hamburgers for life. Uh, and Hodge's restaurant, where he washed dishes before and after becoming somewhat famous, launched a special Charles Ramsey-inspired hamburger and t-shirt in his honor. And so random, a Taiwanese online gaming company released a video game called Charles Ramsey's Burger Bash. <laughs> to the soundtrack of his interview, players would hurl cheeseburgers at dozens of little Ariel Castro avatars, poking their heads out of a house Closely resembling 2207 Seymour Avenue, one of the Castro avatars would strum a bass guitar while another would be on a motorcycle. Furious that Charles wasn't getting paid for that game, Ramsey's newly appointed attorney issued a statement on his behalf saying he did not endorse the game, Ramsey's Burgers or Burgers for Life. Uh, Ramsey did sign a book deal with a Cleveland publisher to write his autobiography, as well as inking a $10,000 contract to go on a celebrity speaking circuit. To top it all, the Eric C. Kahn law firm in Stanville, Kentucky, announced plans to commission a fucking statue of Charles that would be donated to a Cleveland museum. But less than two months later, Ramsey would tell the Mail Online uh, magazine that fame had ruined his life and he was broke. I'm broke, bro. And that's the truth, he said. I don't have an address. I don't live anywhere. As of 2018, Ramsey still lived in Northeast Ohio, worked in a restaurant, at least according to some sources. Other sources say he was doing some motivational speaking, but it's hard to tell if that's true since he doesn't appear on websites, uh, advertising any events. I hope that wherever he is, he at least has a moment here and there to reflect on being the first kind man Amanda Barry had seen in around a decade, to know that when someone needed his help, he was there, did not hesitate to help them. Now let's get out of here.
1: Time suck. Top five takeaways.
0: The Cleveland kidnappings Tremont's house of horrors has been sucked. Thank you to Sophie Evans for her initial research this week. (laughs) I was thinking, I kept thinking I got to cut parts. It's too long, but it was also compelling. Uh, Thanks to the Space Lizards on Patreon for supporting the show. Ad-free episodes are here. Thanks to the team, uh, including Mr. Logan Keith, the art warlock, recording, uploading this episode for distribution soon. Uh, also, thanks to the all-seen eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page, the Mod Squad, making sure Discord keeps running smooth, and everyone everyone over on the Time Sucks subreddit and Bad Magic subreddit. Next week, how about a surprise? Trying to figure out here, uh, if it matters, to put a preview at the end of these episodes. Sometimes I do that, and then when I start the next episode, I'm not feeling it. Doesn't feel like the best choice for the week, and I wish I could switch it, but I already committed to it. So how about we dump the previews going forward? And when I'm not tired from just finishing prepping the episode, I'm about to suck. Uh, then I pick something that I think will be the best for the week. Does that sound good to sex? Trying to make little changes here and there to make the show better, and maybe that'll be one of them. So let's head on over to this week's Time Sucker updates. If you'd like to update uh, your updates, sc- excuse me, to maybe be read, send it to bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. Updates. Get your Time Sucker Updates. Uh, our first update is a little blast from the suck versus Amway past from someone whose name I I redacted to make sure they don't lose their job. (laughs) They write, Hey Dan, long time listener to the podcast. And I'm having some direct contact with the group that you've mentioned in a previous episode. Of course, I'm talking about the good God Amway hail the provider of limited edition combination rotisserie and deep fryer. I'm a security supervisor at a theater in Vegas. And they're using the theater I work at for one of their corporate events. And it's been pretty fucking wild. First off, this event is for diamond level and and above only. So it's the people who have really bought into it. And oh my heck, do they get mad when you even insinuate that they're part of a pyramid scheme. They have instructed security management, so me, to send home any employees who are caught saying the words pyramid scheme or multi-level marketing. To which my boss responded politely with, do you want security for your pyramid scheme event or not? (laughs) So yeah, that seems pretty culty to me. They also get uncomfortably excited for people getting promoted to higher levels. I swear I thought some dude was going to start foaming at the mouth when they announced someone reaching Founders Executive Diamond level. By the way, I didn't make up that level. It's totally real and not even in the top five. Just figured I'd reach out and share a personal experience with the suck adjacent topic. And please, for the love of Nimrod, come back to Vegas. Haven't gotten to see you live since the Toxic Thoughts Tour. There's at least one space lizard here who would love to see you again. Not apologizing for the length of the email. Hail Nimrod. Three out of five stars. Wouldn't change a thing. Your loyal space your name redacted. Uh, my favorite part of that email was your boss responding with, do you want security for your pyramid scheme event or not? <laughs> Why are they so fucking sensitive about that? Amway is not legally a pyramid scheme, according to a 1979 Federal Trade Commission ruling, but they are. They're an MLM for sure. And for every Founders Executive Diamond level member, there are thousands of people wasting money trying to get Amway rich, people who might as well just buy lotto tickets. Uh might be a little while, but whenever I do launch another tour, I'm sure I'll eventually make it back to Vegas. Enjoy that sunshine, I'm jealous. Uh, now for some good constructive criticism from attentive sucker Brandon Wilson, who writes in with a subject line of pronouns. Dear Dan, you magnificent son of a bitch, I'm not here to talk to you about uh, you not knowing the preferred pronouns of someone in your stories. That would be ridiculous. But I still want to talk to you about pronouns. I've been listening to Time Suck for four or five years now and have listened to every episode. I uh, was also a spacer but money is tight and had to end my patronage before the secret suck ended. I'm listening to the podcast at work because I'm alone all day, every day. I can recall oftentimes thinking to myself, who the fuck is he talking about? And then backing up the podcast, two, three, sometimes five plus minutes to figure out the name of the person you're discussing. This is because you'll say, let's meet Dick Johnson and then only dress him as he or him for the next few minutes. So what I'm asking is to swap out one of those he, she, him, hers for a name every minute or so. It sure would help those of us who have occasionally uh, have to shift our focus to work and when we come back, we're confused. Or maybe it's just me. Either way, please and thanks. Love you and the Bad Magic crew long time. Brandon Wilson. Well, Brandon, yeah, thank you. I mean, I, I think that would be a good idea, you know, to uh, <laughs> to throw the names in there more. And yes, it would be, pretty impossible trying to figure out the preferred pronouns of various dead time suck subjects. But you're suggesting, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, a lot of these episodes like today, fucking long, long episode, tons of characters that can get very confusing. I get confused recording it in moments. You know, it's a lot. And a name reminder here and there is a good idea. So appreciate you trying to help me make this better. And finally, super smart patriarch sucker, Jared Osborne is married to a fool or a really nice person who's very smart, but she's just not used to my bullshit. He writes, hey, suck master. So my wife was driving me to a quick little surgery and took pity on me and let me put on time suck. Let's just say it's not her style, but she did start getting into the Gilles de Rey suck. Now, when you started off on your tomfoolery about heads falling off, I knew you were full of shit. But when I see the look on my wife's face of horror and hear an audible, what the fuck? See a shiver go down her body. I knew she bought that shit hook, line and sinker. I laughed so fucking hard anywho keep on sucking jared jared i love that for a few moments your wife actually thought that there was a parasite out there that can eat little tunnels in your neck (laughs) to the point that when you turn around too quick your head can literally fall off ah that message alone made that bullshit worth it hail nimrod everybody thank you for all the messages next time suckers i needed that we all did Thank you for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast. Scared to death, time suck each week. Uh, Be sure and leave a rating and or review. Throw us those five stars, please. And thanks for doing that. Also, maybe don't kidnap anyone this week and trap them in your house for a decade to use as a sex life. It's not cool. It's really not cool. If you've been thinking about that, maybe take a break from the porn. Try jerking off to fantasies about being in a happy relationship based on mutual respect and love. And keep on sucking.
1: Mad Magic Productions.
0: And just one last quick thing, I I didn't want to break it up, bring it up earlier, and have any of you you know worrying too much about me throughout the rest of the episode. But no, I, I did I did fall again, fell out of bed with a with a boner for a third time, and uh, again it, it did break my fall, Whew, and now I got some real problems uh, now. My boner has been bent to full 360 degrees. You know those twisty, silly, crazy novelty straws? That's what my dick is now. And going to the bathroom is very complicated. And sex is completely out of the question. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm thinking about at least trying, taking out a heavy rolling pin, throwing back a couple painkillers and really just, you know, putting in some work to straighten the shit out.